we caught? Belgium's stupid. Oh, don't fuck around. You tell Paul Lazaro where we are. We're in the middle of crouch, you wop asshole. Well, you got us here. Get us out. Hallelujah, thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily. Tag, hello and welcome in Won't Stay Dead. This is a podcast dedicated to horror and cult films. Um, this week we are looking at uh, Slaughterhouse Five, the 1972 adaptation of the uh, Kurt Vonnegut anti-war classic. Um, so yeah, start off by introducing the panel. It's uh, Mr. Paul Doran sitting beside me. Yep, it is indeed. Hello. And young David Hanna. Hello. Yay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we've had to both watch a film and do a bit of reading for this week, um, which isn't um, kind of usual for the podcast, but it's been good. Um, it's been a while since I read a read a book in the space of about 24 hours, but uh, yeah, I kind of left it to the last minute. Um, did you guys both manage to read the book and watch the film? I suppose you'd... I'd, I'd read the book and actually I've been flying my way through it again uh, today, but I didn't get it finished the second time. But uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, just saw the film. I'd never seen the film before, even though I chose it. But uh, yeah, just chose it on. Yeah, I watched it on uh, two nights ago, and it's fantastic. Much much better than I expected. Is it? Is it on Netflix? Yeah. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. How, how, how long ago do you think it was since you last read the book all the way through? Uh, I think it was maybe about five years. Right. Maybe five years, and I'd forgotten. Like I'd read maybe another ten. 10 or 11, I think I counted 10 or 11 Vonnegut novels or books since and uh, it I think maybe Slaughterhouse Five, I sort of forgotten about it I sort of just brushed it aside and thought like it was one of the, the first one I ever read so I, I thought all, all these other ones I'd shine it but no, it's actually, it is terrific it's, it's so much better than I remember, I loved it anyway but it's, reading it again, the writing is superb and yeah it's excellent, really 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 can't get enough of it. Actually, read it again. <laughs> Glass. Did you manage to read it? And you know, like, had had you read the book before? Yeah. Paul said, or coincidentally, I read it about a month ago. I just kind of picked it up because I was just looking for more sci-fi stuff to read, and I think I just went online and found one of those classic sci-fi lists or books you should read, and ended up reading it, and I couldn't put it down. I thought it was a really good book, so uh, it was interesting to see the film. Which I just watched today because I kind of left it the last minute. Classic uh, date. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I watched it all. Yeah, it was interesting. We, we definitely all came to this not having seen the film, so it'll be interesting to see what everyone thinks about it. Um, so, should we do the beers? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, at the start, I have to say uh, our website is won'tstaydead.wordpress.com, and there's links to the SoundCloud and iTunes and Facebook and Twitter accounts there, so that's the easiest thing to do if you've kind of. Um, stumbled upon us by accident. Uh, yeah, won't stay dead. Dot wordpress. Dot org or dot com. I always say dot org. <laughs> it's dot com. Right, you're out of the podcast. <laughs> Yay! Shit podcast anyway. <laughs> you can start a dot dot org yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Do whatever the hell you want. 
Okay, um, I'm going to go first this week because you guys always go first, and it's not okay. fair. Um, okay, I've just kind of got beers from countries that were involved in the Second World War in some sh- in, in some shape or form. Um, the first one is uh, Blue Moon, which is an American kind of wheat beer. And the reason I chose Blue Moon over all the other American beers is because Blue Moon, to me, sounds like a kind of wartime song. You can imagine that crackling away yeah, in an yeah. old LP, can't you? True. Um, and the fact that it is supposed to be it's recommended that you serve it with a slice of orange, and that kind of reminded me of one of the things that the English soldiers have. You know, they've kind of got cigars and good coffee, and I think two or three times Vonnegut mentions that they've got really, really good marmalade. Yeah, yeah. So there you go, American orange marmalade. Excellent. Links. Yeah, that's, good. that's good. Um, And I've got Peroni Doppio Malto, Italian beer, to remind us of our friend uh, Paul Lazzaro, who yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. is a bit of a fucking head case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in the book, they, they mention Hiroshima and the Japanese a few times, so I've got Asahi, which is a kind of Japanese rice beer, which is pretty good. Yeah. Is it like is it bad taste to kind of choose your beer on the basis of an atomic bomb that wiped out an you know, mm. an entire city? I think it's I think it, it is appropriate to this particular film and book. Yeah. That, Unless uh, you see it as a celebration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I suppose it's a solidarity with the Japanese people, isn't it? Yeah. Why not? Save yourself. Uh because it's German, it's a Bavarian wheat beer. Um yeah, I've got the Hefe version, Hefe Hefeweizen. Um, Pilsner Urkel uh, which is a Czech beer because the film was filmed in Prague parts of it were filmed in Prague in a studio in Prague and also obvious Second World War relationship you know with uh, the Czech Republic and the last one is uh, Spitfire which is an English ale and obviously the Spitfire um, kind of certainly for English and British people um someone mentions Spitfire you obviously immediately think Second World War and mm-hmm. RAF and Union yeah. Jacks it's kind of one of those I mean Spitfire is kind of one of those um, symbols that you know is kind of used quite often by the far right to kind of stir British nationalism and therefore hatred of foreigners but um, it's I think I think it's safe to say it's it's mostly a symbol of of British engineering and yeah. Second World War kind of yeah. isn't it? Definitely, yeah. Is there something I could be entirely wrong about this and making it up in my head? But um, I think because I remember watching a Richard Herring show and he said something about like, was it Spitfires have some sort of relation to Poland? It was like maybe, maybe. the metal came from there or something. Maybe. I don't know. Like, uh, maybe someone tweet this and tell us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hashtag WSD podcast. There's a film about uh, a film called The First of the Few, which I think is about the uh, the guy who made the first Spitfire, and I think maybe David Nibbins in it, a really young David Nibbins. But um, it's it's quite pretty good. They they're like goes to Germany in like nineteen thirty seven or thirty eight and uh, uh, meets all these generals and they they have have the crack and then a year later they're at war with them uh, for a year or two years and uh, yeah it's I don't know it's, it's a good film anyway that's off the off the subject but it's cool the only print I've ever seen is really shaky and and like I don't know anyway, check it out worth seeing yeah it is yeah I really enjoyed it yeah. I think it was, must must be made in like nineteen forty four or something. Bloody hell, um, or forty five. But yeah, um, yeah. Well, it wasn't the what, was it UKIP or the BNP used the Spitfire? I'm not sure. It was the BNP. Yeah. BNP. That's what that Richard Herring sketch was about because they right. had pictures of it on their flyers or pamphlets. Yes, uh, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's why I think there's kind of contradictory. There's something contradictory about their flyers. Mm-hmm. Like something was made in Poland or whatever, and they were going on about like Great British. I, I could be wrong about the Spitfire, but there might have been something else. On yeah. There. Yeah. 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 But yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Paul. What did you What did you bring and why? Well, I've uh, <coughs> I went with an obvious Erdinger Dunkel because uh, it's German and uh, it's dark, like the humor in Slaughterhouse Five. Mm, very good. And, um, <laughs> shipyard export American craft beer. I can't remember. I think the only reason I cho- chose this was because I like it and it is American, <laughs> as is Mr. Vonnegut. And if um, you were going to bomb a city, you would you like to bomb their shipyards. You'd That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's like the patronizing teacher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if, if you were going to bomb a place, that might be. I also. Oh, I've left it in the fridge. I've also got a flying dog. Uh, IPA Class. or skinny dog IPA uh, downstairs which is also American and there's a dog in, in Slaughterhouse 5 called Spot who is quite skinny oh, yeah. um, uh, William's brother Joker IPA because Kurt Vonnegut is a at heart just a, a Joker or <laughs> likes to be seen as a Joker and the obvious 5am Saint for 5 oh. Slaughterhouse 5 oh ok yeah, yeah. yeah. that's, that's uh, good <laughs> 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 That was uh, that. That occurred to me the second I chose the film, and it, it might have actually inspired the choice of the film. Was uh, <laughs> was thinking about Five AM Saint and how much I love it, and hand in hand because Five. That's the only connection, and it's delicious. And Brew Dogs. So there's another dog. And Brew Dogs. Another dog. Yeah. That's right. Nice. So, yeah. Cool. cool. Dave, what about you? Oh, Minecraft. Uh, I was very broke at the minute because I'm kind of moving house. So I got the three for a fiver. <laughs> in Sainzos? Uh, Sainzos? Yeah, Sainsbury's. Oh no, in the vineyards they always do. It's like, uh, I'll show you. Well, actually, the first thing I reached was that Peroni, which you also have the Topio Malto thing, because it's pretty good. We both also had that. For, we both also had that for another podcast. What was it? Yeah, I can't uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it is pretty yeah. good though. So yeah. it's like, um, but yeah, it's the same reason as you. Ian. It was just that guy, oh, the Zaro. Yeah, I got two of those. Double malt is that W malt? Is that what that? Yeah. yeah, and I got Spaten. You know, all that German. Good. It's pretty obvious. That's part of the three for a five. Yeah, and Spaten means spade. So the spades that they oh. use to take the grades. Yeah, yeah. Right, Mr. Teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and then another Spaten because it's part of the three for a five. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, yeah, I got like a Star of Bramham because it's Prague, and same reason as you picked yeah. the Czech beer because it's filmed in Prague. So. Yeah, that's that's me. Start problems. I was in a rush and I'm broke, so that's my excuse. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're good. They are good. I was um, going to go to the vineyard, but I, I went to the vineyard on Thursday night. Um, anyone who listens to the show will probably know that the vineyard is the off license of Belfast that we go to to get all our weird beers. So I've been there once, and it's kind of the kind of off license. You shouldn't really go more than twice in a weekend because then that that probably means you spend about forty quid on beer. Yeah, true. Yeah. True. Three for a fiver, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely parched. Uh, yeah, me too. I've been dying. This. I actually, I didn't go to the vineyard. I should have gone to the vineyard. I went to Lavery's after work, uh, oh, which okay. is uh, the other side of town from here. And I walked uh, all the way from Lavery's to here along the embankment. I thought it'd be nice to walk along the river uh, on a nice summer evening, but uh, it started pouring and it was really far. And the beer was really heavy. 
Sounds miserable. Uh, yeah, it was crap. <laughs> I'm actually basically walked past the vineyard to get there. So, <laughs> so here's to uh, just slaughterhouse five and being back in the house and drinking the beer. Prost. Cheers. Prost. Indeed. <sighs> right. Um. Slacked a hot. Slacked half fed. So, uh, Paul, have you got something? Lined up for us. I do, yeah. I've got a quiz to start us off. Yeah. Wet your slaughterhouse appetites. Um, so, this, uh, normally our quizzes uh, would take a turnabout. This one is just going to be first person to uh, chime in with the right answer and gets a point. And I should get a wee pencil. To if we get, if, if, if we chime in but, but get the answer wrong, does that mean we, can, we, can't, we, can't, we can't guess again or can we just keep guessing? Uh, keep guessing because no, some of these might be yeah you'll get nowhere with them uh, <laughs> so um, I was trying to think of a uh, a quiz that would fit tonight's purposes uh, in that this is obviously a film that is better known as a book and uh, the the book itself has got a cult has much more of a cult status than the film has but the film has got quite a cult status behind it as well Um so I decided to choose choose books that have been made into f- cult films cult or horror movies actually most of them are horror not all of them but uh, and I've decided to give you a little bit of information about each book and film don't let me say I want to say sorry <laughs> uh, and you have to guess what the film is and if you can give me the name of the author uh, you get an extra point and if the film has a different title in the book if you can give me everything you get an extra point however the amount of information I'm going to give you isn't the blurb as you would expect or anything like that it is the worst reviews of each book I could find on Amazon so I've gone for the one star reviews of each Brilliant. taking quotes for them so so we're trying to guess the film guess the film or the book most of them is the oh, same but if you can guess the film um, if you can give me the author you get an extra point ok so there's a maximum of two points Maximum of two points. One of them's got three points actually. I think I'm going to reach a maximum of two points. Oh, no, <laughs> no, I think I think you should get them. But these are these are quotes from some of the one star reviews I came across, and some of them don't make a whole lot of sense. But um, sure, let's go. So let's see. I'll get a wee a wee tally here. So, and time to play Paul's rinse out movie film quiz. Here we are. It's a movie one star movie film quiz. So, number one, the one-star Amazon review said, Well, I managed 190 pages, and all I got from my perseverance was a brief encounter with a wasp nest. The rambling rubbish has, has to rate as the most boring novel I've ever had the misfortune of reading. My girl? <laughs> <laughs> Close. Uh, oh. The wasp's nest? I can't even think of films. Like the wasp factory? No, that's the only thing I can think of. But it's not been made into a film. Well, the only thing I can think of is My Girl. <coughs> you remember when Macaulay Culkin yeah. gets killed at the end? I'm pretty sure. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a wasp nest in the film. Both the film. There's definitely one in the book. There have been a couple of films. Candyman. No. 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 Lord of the Flies. No. Yeah. I have to give you some clues. Uh, there has been a film, a very well-known film, and. A miniseries. The miniseries was not the Wicker Man. No, the miniseries was more faithful to the book. 
That's more film. Bees, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's Bees, Probably. isn't it? Yeah, I was talking about the, the Nicolas Cage remake, obviously, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, then a series, too. Uh, God. <laughs> I think uh, Hotels. The Stand? The Shining? Shining. Shining. And Stephen King. And Stephen King. Cool. So it's two points to eight. <laughs> okay. So this one, you there's one one thing here is going to give it away, and if you don't get it, then you're probably not going to get it. But uh, I can give you some clues again. So number two, the review says, like my title says, huge anticlimax. I kept waiting and waiting and waiting to see what was going on. Horror. There was nothing that made me shake or get excited. I swear, half the time, all Rosemary was concerned. Rosemary's baby? Yes. Oh, Bye. Uh, I don't know the name of the author. That's all right. Uh, it's by... Polanski, though, direct. He did. Yeah, again, <laughs> actually, yeah. Uh, by... I can't remember the name of that. Ira Levin. That's one point to D. Okay. I thought you would have got that first. Yeah, I was going to say Rosemary's Killer, which was the alternative title to the Prowler. So I kind of, uh, but then I realised that wasn't the wrong one, and realised it was Rosemary's Baby. But by the time <laughs> I realised that, date already said it. <laughs> well, here is yes, another one. This one's going to be tricky. I think I wouldn't have got this. There are two things that might give it away, and if you don't know either, then then you're not going to get it. Hmm. Uh, but I'll give some clues if not. Uh, if I had read this story in 1907 when it was first published. I might have been impressed. Now it just belongs in the corner of a pile of dusty old curiosities. The characters are literally incredible. Quint and Mrs. Jessel come across as some sort of painted Nosferatu figures, and there is no direct explanation of their abominable lifestyle uh, in their pre-ghost days. Nobody's able to say anything directly. Turn of the screw? Yep. Henry James? Yep. Yes. That's it. Wouldn't even have got that. <laughs> I don't think I would have got that, actually, either. <laughs> I read it years ago. Uh, okay. This one should be easy enough. Uh, number four. The book starts well. Written in the format of diary entries, ship logs, and the like. Dracula? Yep. Oh, very good. By oh, Bram Stoker? Yep. Very good. So 4-3 to me? Uh, yep. I said 4-3. Uh, How many questions? Eight and a tiebreaker. <sighs> <laughs> or maybe just nine. Let's see. <laughs> um, so let's see. Right, okay. Uh, after seeing the 1999 movie and I've taken out the name of the movie obviously after seeing the 1999 movie I decided to buy the book the book was nothing like the movie at all totally very boring large vocabulary of words and totally meaningless to people who, who want to be entertained another review said Lord of the Rings? no no another review said page after page I saw nothing I mean the book is so boring not even scary it should be a ghost story but where, where there is the other where is the other than where is the ghost story other than banging on some doors uh, story. so that's that's going to be a tricky one the only clue is 1999 a film mm. the film was made in 1999 yeah and it's a ghost story and I'll tell you it's set in a house it's set in a house mm. house on Haunted Hill that's <laughs> so close <laughs> So, oh, yeah. so, so close. Yeah, it's not the house in Haunted Hill. It's The Haunting. The Haunting, right. Which is, the, the original title was The Haunting of Hill House by Charlie Jackson, uh, which is okay. essentially The House in Haunted Hill. Yeah. Turned right. But no, I, I remember watching the um, the the remake. It was, uh, I think, Owen Wilson's in it, maybe? 
Is he? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Actually, I don't know. The woman as well, I went to see that. It's coming back to me now. Um, who married uh, Michael Douglas? Oh, yeah, Catherine Jada Jones. I think so. Yes, yes. I think, right. I think yeah. you might be right. I yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember watching that and it just not being funny or not being scary. It was like yeah. a, kind of, it kind of, I think maybe there was like an opening scene with a roller coaster and it was quite shocking, but then after that it just becomes like fucking Scooby Doo or something. You <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. yeah, pretty awful. Yeah. That one was kind of a dick one, actually. Yeah, I'm not sure why I chose that one. They didn't have really nothing to do. <laughs> no clues to go on there at all. Okay. So this one uh, is easy enough, I think. Uh, what begins as a possibly interesting book turns into a long-winded epistolary novel. Robert Walton uh, writes to his sister of his journey to the North Pole. He meets Frankenstein? A yeah. By Mary Shelley? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Date, I think that's, that's yours. Uh, so it's 5-4 five, 5-4 four. Five, four to flea bag is overtaking yeah. actually can anybody get the uh, full title of Frankenstein for an extra point oh, 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 oh I should have done that Frankenstein uh, Frankenstein's a monster <laughs> uh, Frankenstein uh, the oh uh, no um, I know I know um, you're going to tell me and I'm going to get really annoyed um, I don't even know there was one so. oh. it's um I won't get it in time. Go. Okay. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Yeah. Oh. Um, so this one... Uh, <laughs> this one you won't get unless you've seen it, obviously. Um, I don't know if I would get it, but... You will. You get it. You might get it at the very end. <laughs> you should get it at the very end, actually. You will. Okay. This is two reviews, because um, neither of them had quite enough. The uh, first one, so this is not what I was expecting. It is an unpleasantly graphic and disturbing book American which I, Psycho? No. Which I discarded after the first couple of chapters. Second content sent. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Straw so, dogs? No. Second review says, So plotting I'm surprised it didn't come attached to a pair of mood-setting heavy boots. Padded out with pointless detail. Was the author paid by the word? And they go on. Uh, How is a serial killer vampire able to avoid coming to the attention of authorities slash thrill-hungry media for 200 years until fetched up until she fetched interview with a vampire no no blade (laughs) until she fetched up in Sado Oscar's neck of the woods Nosferatu no Uh, um, vampires that are uh, The Hunger Martin um, you're thinking too old it's more recent um, um, Phil Oh fucking Twilight! No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> no serial colors. Uh, Lost yes. Boys? No, more recent than that. Um, An unpleasantly graphic and disturbing book, and film. I mean, two films actually. Very, very, very recent. God, I have no idea. I mean, a film and a remake of the film. A remake as well. Um, the first film is quite recent, which would indicate that. The original film was what in a foreign language. Uh, oh, let the white one in. Yes. Oh. <laughs> By do you know the author? Uh, no. John Ashfield Lindquist. No, didn't know that. Something more level. That yes. was actually yeah. Five all. Five all. <laughs> How many keys left? Uh, one and a tiebreaker, so two, I suppose. Uh, we'll see <laughs> okay uh, right 
yet another American author who thinks his own Indian ramblings with no discernible <laughs> plot can be can be regarded somehow as a masterpiece. American Psycho. <laughs> no. <laughs> if you like a book with a beginning, a middle, and an end, forget this one. And then, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, and the, the Road. Uh, first one to buzz in as I give the next part of the review. <laughs> uh, we'll get this point. So listen carefully. If I read the phrase. So it goes one more time. Slaughter has five. Slaughter has five, yeah. Two points to do. I think D's got it. Well, sure, I'll do the next question anyway. Might as well. Uh, the premise for the book is fantastic, but I find even by skipping an occasional page, I couldn't maintain the suspense and shock of, of intermittent violence. The American Psycho? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Finally. Bye. <laughs> uh, what's his name? Brad Easton. Brad Easton now. Day one nine to five there. Yeah, that's a bit of risk at the end. But uh high score in American Psycho. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do American Psycho after. Uh, but yeah, well well done, D. Uh, Young Lisa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cheers, lads. Cheers. Yeah, so, good quiz, Paul. Yeah. Cheers. That's I thought fun. it was a, a a tricky concept. Yeah. <laughs> it was. It was tricky. It took me about two hours to write all those out, actually. <laughs> Five minutes to read them. <laughs> like Sunday dinner. <laughs> like Sunday dinner, yeah. <laughs> I'm still hungry. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, okay, well, uh, uh, on to the film uh, next, I guess. Uh, we're going to um, crack open a few more beers, and, yeah, we'll be back after this. This is Schlachthof 5. 5 is English 5. Schlacht is Slaughter. Hof is house. Slaughterhouse five. Your house. I can always tell, you know, when you've been time tripping. The patient was a prisoner of war in Dresden when it was bombed. He claims that well over 100,000 people were burned to death in the fire, worse than Hiroshima. He started crying, and the blood spilled out of his mouth. He tried to chew out his own insides, and I said, Hey, boy, that's me inside there with those knives. Anybody asks you for the sweetest thing in the world, it's revenge. Paul, do you want to start uh, yet again by telling us, you know, why you chose it and when you kind of first read first read the book or saw the film? Well, I suppose you hadn't seen the film, but w- yeah. when you first read the book? Yeah, fair enough. Um, I uh, I chose it because uh, Kurt Vonnegut is a bit of a hero of mine. Um, he's, I've read a lot of his books, still got quite a few to read, actually. 
but um, he, yeah, I think I I wasn't really familiar with him until after he died, and then I picked up Slaughterhouse Five and didn't read it for a couple of years after that even. But um, it when I when I first read it, I went straight out and bought bought a stack of Vonnegut novels and uh, began a big a big sort of lifelong or fandom in the last sort of five six years. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a great book. It's a great book, and it's uh, I'd always been aware there was a film of it, but I just never never got around to watching it. And it's something I always wanted to do, so I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity to uh, to do so. And I'm really glad I did because actually I loved the film. Um, Vonnegut loved the film himself, and and uh, I think I'm pretty sure I read he liked liked it. And uh, it's yeah, I can see why it's very quite faithful to the book. There's elements mm. of the the book that they haven't been able to include because Vonnegut was a big a big fan of um, of uh, metafiction and uh, he would make make his presence as writer and narrator known uh, throughout the novel which just wasn't I suppose doable on film but um, um, yeah I think um, for for all the sort of crazy narrative acrobatics he does um, and pulls off I think the film matches matches what it can quite quite well and doesn't try to do anything it can't do so um, I think that's to its credit and uh, it's yeah I think he's an he was a in, very interesting man um, very interesting writer and um, I think it says has done him credit definitely do you uh, what are you um, well yeah like the <coughs> well, as I said earlier like I read this about a month ago um, but I was sort of interested to find out there was a film because I think any time I read a new book I just sort of look it up to see if the film's been made mm-hmm. to see if it's been pictured or not Like, or yeah. but, but then I'm always a bit like there's always a bit of trepidation I'm not sure whether I should watch it or not like, just because it might just yeah. be just awful but <laughs> but no I, I, quite, I quite like this um, bit different from the, the novel but then I thought like whenever I read the novel I thought you couldn't film that like you know yeah but I was gonna ask like did you Paul because you, you like probably the expert here out of all of us on Vonnegut like are all of his books like that the, the narrative style I mean they yeah well they they sort of increasingly um, became like that um, his earlier books he, he started out writing uh, writing a lot of short stories and plays for for like sci-fi magazines and, and for Playboy and stuff like that um, and they're just like straightforward started out straightforward sci-fi stories and then his books started um, started out sort of some really really brilliant what would be described as sci-fi novels um, uh, some historical novels well some not historical some based in uh, Auschwitz things like that um, and uh, yeah he uh, then around the time of I think Slaughterhouse 5 was maybe the first one he started to really experiment with um with narrative style and I think it was because he had so much trouble writing it that he um, he just had to do something something really drastic with it and then after that then his novels all sort of uh, follow some degree of um, of that yeah that very postmodern uh, narrative effect and it, it works works better in some than it does in others but uh, Breakfast mm-hmm. of Champions is another notable one and Time Quick are both um, very very experimental but um yeah, and he's he does when he pulls it off, he pulls it off very well. Yeah. Well, like, like I think like uh, whenever I was trying to research this and stuff, um, I couldn't find too much on the film itself. 
but obviously like loads has been written about the book yeah yeah um, but i was like he was saying or like at least i saw him talking about the book or whatever and he pretty much said that the way he sort of wrote it was like his <coughs> response to trying to write a book about dresden because he was there and yeah. he couldn't find like a proper way to write about it so he mm-hmm. thought this was that kind of suited his thoughts on it like it was yeah it was just very all over the place and you can't really sort of because it was such a horrible event yeah yeah kind of suited it and it it's yeah it's sort of like a it seems almost like a coping mechanism like he's slipping away from the horror into other aspects of his life to show that show that life i don't, I don't know what he what he's showing but uh, you know life is exists in so many other different facets and mm-hmm. this is what this is what all these other people lost as well the people who died in dresden but yeah mm-hmm. right it's he had to go take very very bizarre steps into yeah it's it's it's, it's kind of um that's like you kind of see that in the prose at the start of the novel where kind of billy's trying to sit down we kind of explaining how he came to write it and the, the process of him writing it seems very disjointed it's his yeah. mate has kind of told him that he should what is it, his, his friend tells him he should focus on a specific aspect of a of the story and then he kind of um, oh god I can't remember now. is this uh, when Vonnegut's going to visit his his yeah. war buddy yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hi, um, and his his friend's O'Hare. wife O'Hare O'Hare yeah his friend's wife yeah, says uh, you should um, yeah marry O'Hare that's right I suppose that's yeah. the, the immediate difference with the film isn't it like there is no narrator like it's, yeah it's all from Billy Pilgrim's point of view, whereas I think like the book is all from the narrator's point of view. Aye, yeah. Isn't it, as far as I remember? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Which, um, I, like, whenever you guys watched it, like I was trying to treat, because we're doing it about the film, I was trying to treat the film within itself, like trying to come to it fresh, mm-hmm. but find it very difficult to do. Yeah, it's, it is. It's hard, definitely hard to like, let go from, or let go of the, <laughs> the book itself, which is why it's sort of hard to approach this without... Uh, or we couldn't. I don't think you could approach this with just talking about the film. I think you'd have to. It might be interesting, though. It might be interesting. I mean, I actually, because I only got the book on Friday, mm-hmm. I, I I watched the film. Oh yeah. I watched the film on Wednesday, so I had uh, I saw the film before I read the book. Right. Yeah. So. Um, Do you think you could have? Um, you would have had a lot to say about the film. I suppose there is a lot to say about the film. I think itself, so. Yeah. Because it is. It is quite a powerful work the the book the the film make makes it a lot more clear um and a lot more explicit that it is a kind of a a work of sci-fi yeah because i think if you just read the um book uh particularly taking into consideration the kind of the time it was said you know kind of modernism um because it is a kind of modernistic book i mean like i know you said that you know kind of aspects of our postmodern but i think i think the prose is very modernist yeah i suppose yeah Um, just the interior monologue um um, and so, up to like a serious amount of them, yeah. I think it's 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 possibly more open to interpretation the book whether or not he is actually being trans transported to Trafalmador and yeah. being taken back or whether it's just kind of you know because isn't isn't there a scene where um, he's having a shower and that reminds him of 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 having a shower when he was like when he's a kid with his yeah, dad being by his mother and yeah, yeah um, they're being showered in the. Yeah, sort of prisoner war camp, yeah. and, uh, and that's, that's just like how I think it, uh, you you could take that as as being you know just like if you're walking down the street and someone like a, a phrase or a song or a smell could take can take you back twenty yeah. years to a holiday with your parents in France and all of a yeah. sudden memories come flushing back and it feels like they're whereas in the film it's quite explicit I think maybe True. yeah it's almost yeah I suppose actually that is definitely right, an alien abduction it's quite modern as well it's like taking Proust to like the nth degree uh, yeah but yeah um, it, it it is the I think the film 
probably would have had a lot of difficulty capturing that. Um, but I don't know. I think it's you do sort of have to take it for granted. You do sort of, I think, maybe take it for granted in the film that um, he definitely is being abducted by aliens. But um, I don't, yeah, I know, you know what you mean. In the book, it is. Yeah, it's very. Because um, the the there aren't many crossovers between between what he's saying is happening and reality as other people experience it. But but one of the one of the one instances where that does happen is the disappearance of the adult actress. Mon- yeah. What's she called? Montana. Wildhack. Yeah, Montana Wildhack. We learn that. I think in the film we learn that she went missing, and I think the book goes as far to say that there's a rumor that she is sealed in concrete and at the bottom of some river or something, as if, as if she's been killed by the mob or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But True. as far as the world's concerned, the body has never been found and she's just just disappeared. Yeah. Um, and that's maybe, that's that's one of the only... And then, obviously, so that kind of links up with his his um, claims that he is going out with her and, yeah. all, you know, yeah. making his yeah. virus away. But there, there aren't really any other kind of crossovers between what he's experiencing having a tangible effect on other people's lives but that does yeah. because she is missing and no one has found a body and no one does know where she where she is yeah that's true and that I suppose that happens at the you assume what is at the very end of his life he doesn't seem to go anywhere further past that um, well that's the like thing with the film is I guess it's the director's interpretation of the book isn't it like, yeah whereas yeah. I, I think with us three haven't read it anyway I was of the mind of I'm not sure if he is just crazy or if it is supposed to be yeah. like he is actually when has actually been abducted. When you're reading the book? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think like the director of the film has just gone, Well, this is my yeah interpretation yeah. of it and this yeah. is the way I'm gonna present it to people. Yeah. So like, I suppose we should maybe talk a bit about the the plot for anybody who hasn't <laughs> read it or seen it. Okay. Um, and intends to. But uh Basically, there's no way to give away any spoilers because um, <laughs> if you read the book, in the first the first chapter is just um, to tell you anything any dramatic thing that happens. Um, but uh, basically, Billy Pilgrim uh, goes to fight in Dresden um, as a, a chaplain's assistant and is captured on his first day uh, by the Germans and is taken to a prisoner of war camp. Um, and he is then taken to work in Dresden um, in a slaughterhouse, in Slaughterhouse mm-hmm. 5. Um, and uh, this is where all the prisoner wars sleep at night. And as they're buried down in the slaughterhouse, um, locked down there during an air raid, um, Dresden is completely destroyed. And uh, it becomes their duty to basically clean up bodies and burn them with, um, burn them with flamethrowers and stuff, and really gruesome stuff. And this um, is all while traveling through his own lifetime yeah. so. <laughs> and at the same time he has become unstuck in time so he uh, shifts between different aspects of his life um, without any control and at one point he can be at his daughter's wedding and the next point he can be uh, he can be back in Dresden or a baby or uh, or captured kidnapped by aliens called Tralfalmadorians hmm. take him to a uh, their planet where they see see time as one see time like a 2d object rather than um rather than linear fashion rather than just something they can't see at all well isn't that how the film starts like the film starts with him on that typewriter 
Yeah, and it's him writing like a letter. To, is it a newspaper? I guess I think so. Is yeah. the editor of yeah. a newspaper? He's writing it to you. Like to see basically the film starts off with the camera zoomed in on his type uh, and it says I've become unstuck in time. But I think doesn't he immediately jump to the bit in where he gets captured? Yeah, I think so. He does. Yeah, it does that scene for me? I don't think like. Like, I, I don't think you can really do it as well, maybe because you have to save time or whatever, but in the book, I thought that scene was a lot better. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's not really as, as clear uh, in the film, I don't think. But yeah. he, he does write, he writes something like, I never know when it's going to happen or something, yeah. and then he just suddenly mm-hmm. he's in... But because we're so used to, in, 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 in cinema, because we're so used to the notion of flashback footage and you know you know uh, like we no longer have you know the screen going all wavy and a you know that no longer happens like they kind of assume an intelligent audience so and we assume that the director that that's what the director's doing if we suddenly see a character uh, younger and in a you know we as the audience know we're intelligent enough to know that that's a flashback so whenever you're watching the film if you're perhaps not paying attention to what he's what he's actually typing it just seems like a flashback but it's not a flashback, is it? No. He, his his consciousness is actually shifting between going back. Yeah. But this is the thing that I was wondering. So, what's then happening to his body in the present? In in, well, in the uh, present, he seems to fall asleep for minutes at a time, um, and shout out and things like that. Um, because uh, in in the book, uh, when he's on the sort of the prison train, um, he. Uh, yeah, nobody will sleep beside him because he keeps shouting out in his sleep and screaming and stuff like oh, that yeah. because he's at a different part of... That's in the book specifically, though? Is it in the book? Yeah, yeah. I don't think they really... No, the only... Like, there are a couple of times they sort of have, have the same... Show the same idea in the film. Where, yeah. Which is where he, he's in a plane crash and they find him in the snow and he's he's just saying stacked half, half foot over and over yeah. again. Um, which is pretty funny, actually. But um, The bit at the start, though, I thought, like, was... a crucial difference for me not necessarily with the time travel and stuff mm-hmm. but with um, the, you know the character Lazaro like, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. who's like just is slowly on well not, not even slowly like straight away he realises he's a bit of a psycho yeah. <laughs> yeah. but in the book um, I think it's when they get captured it's his friend whose name I can't remember uh, Weary Weary, Weary like, he gets his boots taken off him and yeah. is given clothes like they're swapped or something uh, he's a wee 16 year old German kid yeah so he's like he has to march around in his clothes but that's that doesn't happen in the film he's just in his bare feet isn't it it's, yeah it's like they don't really explain it in the book yeah. uh, in the film they just yes. point at his boots so and I think he goes, like, not that it's justified, but at least it kind of gives you a, a reason to his sort of anger at uh, Billy Pilgrim. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing, whereas like in the film, it's just like, I don't know if it's like, because I had the knowledge of the book going into it, but you sort of, I don't know if it's the same effect, because, you know, I had the prior knowledge of, you know, he, he had clogs and his friend died because of this, and he blames it all on Billy Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. But is that why, because in the film, I think it just shows him stepping on the guy's yeah, because he's looking at the yeah. prostitutes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually, I actually thought the book did it better, or the sorry, the film did it better, which is interesting because I saw the film first, because obviously I didn't hadn't read the book, so I didn't know about the clogs. But basically, he's lost his, he's lost his um, shoes, and then there's the whole thing where he bump Billy bumps into him, and then he bumps into him again, and then Lazaro goes mental at him and says, you know, you bump into his feet one more time, you know, I'll kill you. Whereas in the book. It's just that he has the clogs, and I think there's something. It's kind of briefly mentioned that Billy kind of knocks him a bit, but then it's just that's just forgotten about, and then the next thing we know, he's got gangrene. Where yeah. the film specifically shows you him stepping on his toes. So I kind of thought the film did it better, but that's interesting that we've got. 
a different point of view depending on whether or not we saw the book or the film first. Well, that, that's the thing. Like what I was thinking the whole way through watching the film. Like would I, like would I have a different attitude to this if I hadn't have read the book uh, previously? Yeah. Like yeah. would I know what was going on as well? Like um, I suppose like you refreshed it. Like did you? Yeah. So did you have a coherent? Like was the narrative coherent to you when you were watching the film? Um. Yes, as far as I can remember. Um, I have a feeling the book might have cleared some stuff up, um, specifically with regard to the Trelfalmadorians. Um, and I think also maybe Montana. I think it's not. It's. it's I can't honestly remember, but I. I. I must have watched the film late at night because there's, there's big gaps in it that I can't remember what happened, but. I seem to remember in the film, Billy is. I think it's um, when he gives, when he's just given um, Valencia the uh, diamond that he got, you know, from his kind of girl's coat, and he, oh, yeah. he gives her that, and it's like their sixteenth wedding anniversary or something. Mm-hmm. And then he goes up and he finds his son masturbating yeah. over a magazine, which, which actually isn't isn't in the book. No, but in no. the film he goes up and he takes the paper and it's Montana. Yeah, and I can't remember oh and yeah maybe he has seen her before yeah like he sees, I, he sees her at the drive through doesn't but he that's, I think that happens afterwards oh doesn't yeah yeah um, so he, he just picks up this this um, page and it's like a centrefold of Montana and she's naked and he kind of you know he's not he's not kind of going oh wow he doesn't get aroused he kind of smiles as if he knows her I thought, yeah, that, I thought, I, that, I thought but, that was a bit under the blue in the film yeah I suppose actually that only sort of makes sense in retrospect and I hadn't really thought about that he does smile as if he knows her because obviously then he yeah he does know her in the future, so 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 he knows her in the yeah because because yeah. since the moment he became unstuck in time, he sort of has experienced everything in his life as a kind of Trafalgarian view yeah, of time. Yeah, already you know he's he's jumped back and forth to like every point, um, which is yeah sort of hard to hard to wrap your head around <laughs> when, you're, <laughs> well, when you're watching film. I suppose yeah, but there's like bits like that as well where. Um, in the film anyway and it's also in the book as well uh, where he gets on the plane and then he's sort of like well in the film anyway I can't because I can't really remember it in the book where he picks the plane he knows the plane's going to yeah, crash yeah. but he only remembers when he looks out the window and sees those like skiers masks yeah that's right and he panics yeah, yeah. Is it, but is that like because I thought he would just because of the Montana wild hack stuff I thought he would just kind of yeah. know maybe but yeah. I don't know. He seems, not care he seems to sort of be bound to act the way he would act Anyway, you know, without the knowledge or something. Yeah, uh, which is strange. Like, I think uh, I, I think in the book he doesn't even tell anyone. No, it, it says no. that he said it says that he's too, he'd be, he's too afraid of everyone laughing at him, so he doesn't even tell anyone that he yeah. that he's had it that he knows the plane's going to crash. Whereas in the film he tells his mate, who then laughs at him and later on chastises him, says, "Oh, why did you tell that silly joke about us all crashing?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. true. And, um, well, whereas that's in the, his wife's dad in the film, like, is it the same in the book? I can't remember. Because he gets on the plane, remember, and he's talking yeah. to... Because yeah. it, it is his wife's dad. Yeah, yeah, something yeah, like, yeah. Says, I yeah. thought you were, like, a real loser the first time I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then the barbershop quartet pit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that kind of brought back the English officers yeah. turning up for the first yeah, time. Yeah, which is brilliant. That was, like, a class entry. Like. I had no idea what was going on. I thought, <laughs> is this, like, a dream? I yeah. Mean, yeah. Why, why, are the, why are the British POWs marching, singing... <laughs> Barbershop music. I mean, yeah. that that doesn't seem very realistic to me. Was, was I, that a thing? Did, did why would English POWs be doing that? Well, did he ever comment I, on that? Do you know? I what? don't know. I, I think. Uh, I think basically he 
the American GIs in general thought that uh, the British were just like this uh, lovely bunch of chaps who were um, but were almost like self parody you know and I think it's just uh, it's just a, an odd wee moment of, of comedy over the top comedy and, you know, yeah and, and I think the point is these guys have the, the, the spirit that these guys sort of maintain in the, in the camp uh, is that they have to have to find things to have wee projects to get behind and uh, yeah things to keep them going so they they put on plays and you know yeah. musicals and stuff like that and it's quite surreal but um, I think it just adds to this weird dizzy notion of um, they're kind of ma- they're kind of they're they're kind of main- trying to maintain society because they yeah. have cigars yeah, and yeah. marmalade and good coffee exactly and as the guy says and, um, plays, and well. they put on yeah. plays and yeah. yeah have to um, respect yourself because the Germans aren't going to respect you yeah. or something along those lines anyway. and and not even plays Cin- Cinderella Cinderella <laughs> yeah. you know it's not as if they're doing Har- Harold Pinter or anything or <laughs> no. P- P- Pinter yeah, I suppose I mean, it's one of those you know what I mean though, if you were in a prisoner of war camp I doubt many people could remember all the bits of like Othello or something and yeah but and everyone knows Cinderella yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's all do Goldilocks or <laughs> yeah because yeah. it wouldn't be I guess it wouldn't be too hard maybe like you know because you could just improvise the lines and yeah. Stuff. yeah yeah or just no one's going to remember like soliloquies from Shakespeare yeah. Yeah. but the thing is that the, that they kind of quite happily do that even though the Russians are, are just dying completely and utterly screwed like, yeah. just, like the other side of the fence are starving I, I'm I'm saying dirty as in they are unkempt not as in yeah, yeah. I, I'm racist uh, against the Russians <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know they're, like they're, they're dirty and they're you know, yeah. they look they look miserable. Where whereas like one one wall away, the the English are smoking cigars and drinking coffee and watching Cinderella. <laughs> yeah, and well, the camp was meant to be was originally meant to be uh, an extermination camp for Russian soldiers. Which, yes, uh, that's what they say, isn't it? Is uh, is really horrifying in itself. Like, I think that the Russians were treated differently in the war anyway. Like obviously yeah. the turnaround whenever Germany tried to invade Russia mm-hmm. after the was it, what did you call that uh, Barbarossa? Oh, uh, the pact that was. Uh, the common term yeah it might have been it might have been it yeah whatever it was anyway like um, yeah I think like the Russians were brutally treated and also the Russians brutally treated any Germans they caught as well yeah definitely but uh, I think the war treated in a different light because of the whole racial crap that came out of the Nazis yeah and the the communists I I, I think I mean just just from what your your man says Campbell isn't he called the, the, the American Nazi yeah, yeah. I mean, he he kind of comes in, and just just from what he's saying, I mean, I I don't really I kind of didn't really pay, didn't really pay attention in history class, unfortunately. But from what he kind of says, it's 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 to do with the fact that the Nazis almost believe that um, the the Brits and the Americans are just kind of uh, you know good good. Good patriotic Nazis just hiding in mm. kind of imperialist imperialist clothing, and once the war's over, the Americans will realize. Yeah. You know, so they almost kind of that's why they don't kill the Americans and the Brits because they're they're one of them. They just don't know it yet. Yeah. Whereas the Russians are horrible Slavic commies. I think they basically figure <coughs> the Russians have to be wiped out, or else they will wipe us out. <coughs> the same sort of opinion yeah. they have for the Jews. You know? But but uh, but but not kind of Protestant Americans or Protestant Englishmen no, because they yeah, are. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because they're the same as them. I suppose they. I think they probably figured that. Democracy could be turned to them, but communism could never, because communism was always a, an enemy of fascism. Fascism, 
I think, like, I, I'm pretty sure Hitler had a lot of reverence for the English and, you know, the, mm-hmm. sort of the British Empire and all that. Like, and yeah, Hitler go to university in Liverpool for a while. I think I remember reading that somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. I think Brown Bainbridge wrote a novel about it. I don't know. No, I do. And it's um, really. Because, mm. well, I know he was a soldier in the First World War. Yeah. And then he was a bit of a failed artist after that. And he obviously got into politics after the war. And apparently he was just an awful politician at the start. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know his complete background and how he became so successful in the end, but yeah. how, you know, we got to that platform where he was able to yeah. be successful. I've I think I've, I've read about it before and it's it's very like it's quite gradual with like a couple of just big leaps. Yeah. Oh yeah, I assume it's something to do with there was the first um that they had like a pitch which kind yeah. of failed and he got put in prison Aye. and the judge had sympathy for them. And yeah, and almost these, martyred him, like yeah. And then he wrote his big uh, well, Opus uh, Mein Kampf, yeah, which is I've never read it, but it's no, not very right. good. Like. No, <laughs> no, I have heard, I have heard people say that that um, it's the rambling of a madman. That it's kind of badly written, you know. Yeah. Obviously, obviously, the subject matter is absolutely yeah. uh, horrendous, but it, it, you know, even beyond that, it's not a very well written book. Like, is I mean, Paul Paul works in um, a bookshop. Paul, is it? Is it um, is it readily available? Can you yeah, yeah, can you order Mein Kampf? No questions asked. Or? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's usually on the shelf. Like, um, but uh, if I went down to Waterstones tomorrow, could I probably get a copy? You <laughs> not, that I'm, not that I'm going to, but pretty sure I've seen that there. Before. Yeah, no, it's definitely been there before. Um, there is some there is some debate as to whether or not they should stock it, but I mean, it's it's a an historical artifact. You know, it's um, yeah. uh, it's up up to people how they want to read it, I suppose. But no, there are a couple of couple of for like big major publishers that I think have a couple of yeah. does it have its own section the truth <laughs> <laughs> I I, I can't really um, I can't I, I mean I can't really see any see any kind of sensible arguments for why it shouldn't be published to me no no I mean yeah. actually I think it, it's better to publish it because I think if you ban it then it's going to um, give it a, a sort of notoriety and it's going to yeah. make a make a murder of it you know like it's like I always think that's a good argument for like well sort of not free speech in general but like sort of any kind of idiotic racist or fascist like yeah. things like if you just make them freely available to read people yeah. to see how stupid they are yeah just let them embarrass themselves like, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> talk, talk themselves out but I'd be I mean I wonder I wonder I wonder could you buy Mein Kampf in German in Germany I wonder, it's, I wonder what it is. I imagine so. Germany. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure you can. Yeah, can I think you can. Think so. I know, like swastikas yeah. and stuff like that are banned, aren't they? Like you can't do the Zeke Kyle salute. Yeah, 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 that's right. So. People say that, but I mean, can you do the Zeke Kyle salute here? If you did the Zeke Kyle salute here, yeah, can you? Can you? I think it's just Germany, but like I'm pretty sure there was something where like English football fans were arrested for doing it in Germany. Yeah, in Ger- sorry, yeah, in Germany. <laughs> yeah. Um, because they thought they were being funny or something like. Oh right, yeah, hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure yeah. there was a case, something like that, anyway. But um, but um, but on that subject, anyway, well, well, we were talking about him, that guy Hard W. Campbell Jr. Yeah, I found him way more interesting in the book, I think. But maybe it's just the same case again of where I visited that first. Because there seemed to be a lot more information about him. Or yeah. at least he talked a lot more. Yep. Yeah. And he didn't seem as comical and I think it's because of the outfit they give him yeah, did they have yeah. that in the book? I don't think so yeah they he's do like, explain it he's actually got his own book um, Vonnegut wrote a, a book a novel about him actually called Mother Night as well which, yeah. I, which I've never read um, the book does does explain it it gives him the big boots it gives him the, the, the blue suit 
and it says he has like stars and stars going from his armpits to his ankles. Oh right, sure. And he's got like yeah. a he's got like a green arm. And I can't remember. Does he have this in the film? In, in the book, he's got a green armband with a silhouette of Abraham Lincoln on it. And on his other arm, he's got the Nazi one. He's definitely got a Nazi. He's definitely got a swastika. I never noticed Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. In the film, but. But the fucking uh, whenever you see him in the film, you're just <laughs> like, oh my god, yeah, solar helmet. Yeah, and the sky blue. <laughs> And the stupid stars overall. <laughs> Would you want an interesting tidbit that I found that can link him to Enemy Man? Yeah. From the last episode. I've, I've got it written down here so I can remember. Uh, when I was looking this up, I was just like looking up the actors and everything. Um, but the guy who plays him is called Richard Scal. And his daughter is uh, Wendy Scal, who happened to be in Inner Space. But who is, you know, had Dennis Quaid in it. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. So he was in... Uh, <laughs> Amazing, <laughs> but uh, she's—if anybody doesn't know who she is—she is mostly famous for being Francine in American Dad. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you know who she is in? No. In her space, she's probably I, just like. I think she was a bit part kind of yeah. scientist. Five. <laughs> I'm just wondering if she, yeah, I think she might have been maybe one of the ones in the lab at the start or something. But right. Yeah. I can't remember back that far. Yeah. And I didn't really bother to research it much more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 but yeah, the I mean, well, the difference in, that I can think of offhand, that scene is in the film, it's Lazaro, who kind of starts slagging him off, and in yeah. the book it's Darby. Yeah, But I yeah, think yeah. I think maybe Darby says some stuff in... Because the, 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 the thing about the film is that Lazaro stands up, and Darby tries to stop him, and Lazaro says, I didn't vote for you, Darby, and starts walking towards him, and this mm-hmm. is just after Campbell said, who's with me? So you kind of assume that Lazaro is going to join the American Nazis, but then once they get down into the bunker, Lazaro says, just so you know, I wasn't going to join you. I was about to tell you basically how <laughs> yeah. much of a ball bag I think you are. Yeah, I think yeah. he said. I was going to say, I was kill him as well. Yeah, yeah. Says, I was going to say, someday you'll hear your doorbell ring. <laughs> is that we speak, she always gives. Do you believe Lazaro? Uh, that he will... Do you think he was going to join, but then once the area... Oh, is... I, I don't know. And then once the area yeah. started, he kind of thought, actually, that's a bad idea. I'll... I bet I let everyone know I wasn't. Or do you reckon yeah, he was going to stand up and tell him? Because the area is is obviously uh, destroying, uh, yeah. destroying all hope that um, he had to begin with. Yeah, maybe actually. Lazaro is a wee shit, like so. Uh, you, uh, but is he a Nazi sympathizer? I don't know. I think he he might. He's an opportunist, maybe. Yeah, opportunist, yeah. yeah, that's the best way to describe him. Um, yeah. I know that thing. <laughs> one day you're gonna get a knock on the door. Yeah. So you're just gonna make a note of everyone who's ever pissed him yeah. off and yeah. get one one gunman to go around yeah. and specific instructions to first of all shoot their cock, wait a few seconds, <laughs> shoot them in the guts, yeah. and walk away. <laughs> yeah, so you kind of reminded me of people I've worked with before, though. Really? Yeah. I think I don't know if you've ever met anyone like that in your life. Sometimes you just do meet very angry, sort of psychopathic people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It just seemed to like they're they're always constantly going to get their revenge on people, but yeah. obviously they never do. So it kind of reminded me of some sort of characters I've met, and you know, in my lifetime. But yeah. I, just, I just thought he was just this sort of idiot who just can't can't properly rationalize anything. I know, yeah. and he can't let anything fucking go. Yeah, like it's the fact that he does genuinely think Billy has killed Weary. Yeah, you know, rather than you know it was the Nazi who stole his fucking shoes. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose like yeah, I kind of like. <laughs> The way, like, Billy, and this is probably more about the book, it's been brought up probably loads of times, but um, that Billy is the one who survives the most through it all, even though, like, he's this 
sort of pathetic character who just sort of travels along all the time. Yeah. Whereas this other guy, like, was arrows, like, you know, this wee hard man who thinks he's going to take on everybody by himself. Yeah, the most passive character. Yeah, yeah and sure looks down on Billy all the time. The most passive character survives the, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah but Lazaro li- lives longer than Billy. Because Lazaro killed him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, through the war, though, like, you know, all that sort of stuff. Like, you know, like, Billy survives the war, no problem. Whereas, like, those people died. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I think it gets brought up again, doesn't it? When uh, it's one of the scenes where Billy wakes up in the hospital and he's beside that rich guy who, like, is obviously this sort of white, old, oh, yeah, conservative. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, the guy writing the book about Dresden. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like, cause he keeps muttering about, like, like Billy in the bed saying, you know, he's he's no man and he's, yeah. like, you know, I, I, he like, couldn't be telling the truth. Because at one point, like, Billy says, I was in Dresden, he just doesn't mm-hmm. believe him. Or yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's just a yeah. <laughs> horrible person. <laughs> yeah. And that's... And, the, uh, sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead. No, go for it, Paul. What were you going to say? Um, actually, I totally forgot. <laughs> I was going to say, but the story, um, the story about him feeding the dog the steak with the cut-up clock spring in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's horrendous. That's absolutely yeah. horrendous, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's actually like... I mean, the, the guy who plays... Um, Lazaro got his name written down here. Ron Leipman. Mm-hmm. Um, he 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 does that really really well in the film because he's, he's he's holding weary, and he's obviously just died, and he's telling him this story, or he's about to die. He's telling him the story, and whenever he actually talks about the dog, then eating its own insides, and this the line that's me in there, boy, that, yeah. that's me in there with those knives. Like the way he's, the way he says it, yeah. it's like it's almost like he's. It sounds like he's just like. Just getting off on it. Just like injected some heroin or something. Yeah, he's like completely yeah. getting off on the fact that he has made this dog yeah. eat, eat, eat out its own insides or something. Is that what yeah. he says? It's yeah. Yeah. Oh, say, like, there's nothing sweeter than revenge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the, the sweetest thing in life is revenge. Yeah. Not to get off the subject of Lazaro, but I remember like, his face seemed familiar. And I remember seeing him. Like, the only thing I know him from is The Sopranos. He's like the doctor yeah. in The Sopranos. That's right, yeah. He is. Uh, Lazaro, yeah. Oh, okay. He's the one whose office they use to talk about their dodgy dealings. Because mm-hmm. you can't, I don't, to, is it, you can't bug a doctor's office or something. Oh yeah, because confidentiality. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm just gonna say a dead on doctor. He's twat because he lets them off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, um, that was the best thing about the film. I thought like everybody's just seemed well in my imagination anyway. Before I'd seen it, everybody seemed perfectly cast. Mm-hmm. For me, like when, yeah, when I read yeah. the book, I kind of pictured everybody kind of being like that. Yeah, and I thought they did that really well. Definitely, yeah. yeah like Billy, especially, like yeah. looks like says he looks like a, a shape like a cola bottle or something. Yeah, and he is like <laughs> he's, he's a really weird shape, like really weird face. And stuff. He, he, um, yeah. Um, I remember what I was there. I forgot that again. But uh, <laughs> and, um, what do you all think of Billy as a character? He's he's interesting in that he's not interesting. He's uh, he's just I suppose uh, he asked the Trafalgar in um, why him and uh, Trafalgar is like that's just a really interesting question to ask why why ask that um, why anything why, why anything yeah which is like a bug in amber um, <laughs> it's just it could be anybody but he just seems to be his white his, middle class which yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> Um, he just seems to be a um, just a, 
a guy, a passive guy who lets lets time happen to him rather than mm. happens in time or something. I don't know. Why did they pick Montana for him as, as a as a mating partner? Do you think? Do you think it's because they know he fancies her, or is it, it just must be, is it just yeah. coincidence? Yeah. Or maybe maybe he did fancy her because he knew they were bound together. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Mm. Strange. When you watch the film, and you know, like when she first appears in the film, yeah, and like kind of like violently assaults him. Well, not too mm. much, like, yeah, it's brilliant. On him. Yeah, but, um, but then very quickly they get you know very amorous, like, yeah, yeah. Like, but too soon. But, uh, <laughs> but, like, you know, the way you constantly hear the voice of the uh, Tropamadorians going, Are you mating yet? Yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. Like, I just kind of thought that whole thing was a bit silly, like, yeah, because you pick these people and uh, I assume that the, they're like a very intelligent race that knows about human mating culture and patterns and stuff and surely knows that there's a context for all these things that mm-hmm. happen so you can't expect something to happen straight away mm-hmm. in that sense I mean yeah I know according ritual like in western society there's according ritual yeah mm-hmm. either you go out to a club and get absolutely blocked but you don't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, or you, you build up a slow relationship yeah. over time uh, like whether it's a few dates or whatever but like Two people don't immediately meet in the street and start having sex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there there's a bit in the book where it describes the aliens. Um, he t- he takes off his shirt, and because the aliens don't know any better, they assume Billy is a is a, is a good specimen. He's like a fine specimen of a of a male human. Um, when obviously yeah. obviously the joke is he's not. So, yeah, I I don't think the aliens really know what they're doing. To, to, doesn't you kind of say we've we've gone to thirty one, thirty two different planets or yeah, something? That's right. I think is 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 it just that they've just gone? Oh, here's here's a here's a bunch of animals that, or here's a bunch of aliens. That yeah, just uh, let's just grab two of them and, and see what happens. Or yeah, or is it their standards are totally different? Or I don't know. But then they also say at one stage, um, I can't remember what the question asked is, but they say something like, "Only on Earth uh, do people say this." Yeah, that's right. Free will. The notion of free will only exists on Earth. But then, so that's they right. must have some experience, or they've talked. Yeah. Uh, other like if they can see all of time. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. um, <laughs> are, are you having sex yet? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, but I can yeah. see all of time. <laughs> yeah, I know that's right. Yeah, it's strange. And uh, Sirens of Titan, which you were with ten years before, um, which actually I think was a big. Must have been a big influence on Watchmen. Definitely a couple of plot points in Watchmen, anyway. Mm. Um, and uh, Trafalgar appears in that again, in a sort of different context. But it's the implication is that uh, all of human history has um, been basically guided by Trafalgar in order to send a message to one of their sort of lost. Uh, Lost sort of spaceships, and they just they just need need humans to like create one or do one thing, so they create humanity and and all their history um, for one goal is just like send a, a blink of Morse code to, uh, which is uh, is, is brilliantly, brilliantly done. Like, but uh, that's uh, they're very different in that as well. You know, they're sort of robots in terms of atmosphere. So they created like the Holocaust and rape just to send them. Yeah, out. yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. humans are just their a tool they use. You know, which is yeah, pretty harsh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that is pretty harsh. 
Yeah. It's, like, um, it's not exactly like it, but it kind of reminds me of that Arthur C. Clarke novel. Is, um, oh, I can't remember the title. It's something to do with children. Oh, um, I can't remember either. I know uh, it's, it's the overlords come down and control Earth for a while. Yeah. And, like, guide history and say, well, we're not going to tell you what happens. We know what's happening. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to reveal ourselves for a hundred years. Yeah. Even yes. though, like, they've, they've solved, like, the pretty much, like, introduced peace on Earth. Mm. But there's still people are suspicious of them. And yeah. So, um, it's sort of similar in a way, because you can't see them. You don't know what their motives are. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Childhood's End. That's, yeah, the, yeah. that's the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, that's, that's the interesting thing about the, the Transformadorians, is that they 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 cause the, the end of the universe, and they know that they cause the end of the universe. Yeah. But they're not going to do anything about it, because... Of that whole their whole mantra, which is everything, everything ha- has already or every, everything basically already exists or yeah, everything already will has, will has already happened. exist yeah. or has already existed. So there's nothing we can do to stop it. I yeah. thought that particular point was very relevant to the attitude of well, well Dresden, like you know, and just how it's just like people thought it was inevitable and nothing can be done about it like you know mm-hmm. and same with like attitudes to like Auschwitz and stuff like that you know it's just seen as this thing that happened and like nobody could understand why it happened and you know like the, the enlightened western world yeah like, and that was yeah. the attitude that came across to me from Kurt Vonnegut I thought that attitude it was displayed by the travel formatorians was the attitude of well the western world in the end like yeah, you can't stop true, it. Yeah. It's inevitable. Like it's yeah, so all like hopes bother. lost. Yeah. Now, like mm-hmm. yeah. so, um, that's what I thought of immediately. Like from yeah, I suppose Vonnegut had a had this sort of very very sort of complex like humanist view, um, which actually he was a president of the American Humanist Association, honorary president. He took over from Isaac Asimov when he died, mm. um, and he uh, said, well, he basically basically like his. The humanist point of view should be that humanity is um, capable of guiding its, guiding itself, um, creating its own ethics and you know based on and reason. But um, Vonnegut also, I think, realised that uh, humans are also just full of folly and will all, always fuck up as well. You know, will always really um, do as much damage as they, you know, as they do good. You know, so he was optimistic about about humanity in general but very pessimistic about the way everything happened and was a realist and very uh, yeah just I don't know mm. quite quite fatalistic um, but at the same time did have faith in humanity as a concept if not faith in its actions you know yeah that kind of reminds me of that there's that kind of notion that's kind of peppered through through both the book and the film I think it's a Trophon concept where you have to in order to survive you've got to forget about the bad things and concentrate on the good things because yeah. everything because they see because they see um, time almost like a comic strip just yeah they can see the beginning and the end and everything that mm-hmm. happens in between The ba- you, you have to block out the bad stuff and yeah. focus on the good stuff maybe that's, maybe that's what Vonnegut tried to kind of do you know he's, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's a humanist he's a realist so he, so he knows that there will be things like the Holocaust and Hirosh, you know um, Hiroshima and Dresden but there will also be you know Birth and marriage and yeah. friendship and and the Beatles, yeah, and <laughs> sci-fi, Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I, I thought like another thing that was it's not so much the film, but I remember the book. I thought it was quite weird that he mentioned David Irving as the 
The historian? Has that ever been controversial? Yeah. Sure it has. Like, he's the guy, the famous... Yeah. He does, does he deny the Holocaust? I think so, or? yeah. Yeah. Because he basically was the historian. Like, did you notice this? He was mentioned in the book, Slaughterhouse Five. Like, Robomagut uses him as a, as a reference to say how bad Dresden was and how bad the bombing was. Yeah. Um, I think it's been really a lie that it was pretty fucking awful. Like. Yeah, yeah. He, he says 130,000, yeah. I think. But I, I think I think it's it's it, it was only it, it was only eighty thousand. Yeah, something. I think it had to be down. Like you say think. only eighty thousand. Yeah, but <laughs> I know. And 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 Hiroshima. I think he says like it's it's eighty four thousand, and Hiroshima was seventy nine. So mm-hmm. the Americans bombing Dresden was worse than the Hiroshima bomb. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they killed well. It killed more people. Yeah, oh. yeah. Which is that, that's yeah. That was his. Um, that was his claim anyway. And I think I think it is. It does still stand. But um, I take it this was before he was famous for being the Holocaust denier. And David, Ar- it must have been, yeah, yeah, it must have been. And I assume uh, David Irving must have had some sort of some sort of academic credibility to begin with. But uh, mm. I think so. he was arrested, wasn't he? In, I think so. Was yeah. it Austria or Germany, like a few years ago? Yeah, before? for denying yeah. the Holocaust. Or? Yeah, basically. Yeah. I know it's a crime in Germany, like yeah. to deny the Holocaust. Yeah. And he was doing a tour. He's kind of like, like David Icke in a way, in that he just does these tours, you know, mm-hmm. spoken word things, and people buy tickets to go see him. Usually, people are quite right wing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Roy Jolly Brown, pretty hard Jim Davison. Yeah, so like I think he was doing a tour throughout Europe, and he just it's his own fault really because like obviously I disagree with the crime because you freedom of speech should probably be available to people but yeah. if you're going to be stupid enough to travel through a country that has a law specifically saying yeah. don't deny the holocaust or will arrest you don't you know don't go through that country I know he's yeah. obviously um, <laughs> yeah, you can still have to make a point um, absolutely about, but because uh, he is a dick <laughs> <laughs> yeah the holocaust definitely happened <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, what about um, your man uh, Darby? We haven't really spoke, spoken about him. No, I know. Um, I, 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 he kind of ended up being one of my one of my favorite characters, and yeah. I, I kind of um, re- recorded the bit in the film. I want to get a clip clip of the bit in the film where um, <clears throat> they've just arrived in Dresden, and Billy gets knocked out, and he wakes up to find Lazaro, um, you know, hounding him, and then Darby comes in and basically tells Lazaro to bugger off, and then. Mm-hmm. The two of them kind of sit and talk about. Darby says about you know he kind of had quite altruistic reasons for joining the army because he wanted to beat the uh, the kind of the, the spread of fascism and then he kind of com- commends um, uh, Billy's kind of altruistic reasons for choosing um, optometry. So do you want to have a listen to that and um, yeah. and then yeah, kind yeah. of maybe talk about Darby and Billy's relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't mean to be impolite, but how come you're in the army? I couldn't stay out. Not with the Nazis and the Japanese threatening to conquer the world. You know, as a matter of fact, I got a boy your age seeing action in the South Pacific. Hey, that's really something. Yeah. I used to tell my students there's a monster loose in the world. One day I got tired of telling them, I said goodbye, and I joined up. I thought you were a teacher. Oh, come on. You have that confidence in a very good way with words. Well, I'll tell you one thing, son. We don't mince phraseologies at Boston Trade and Industrial. (laughs) Oh, boy. I wonder if my father was still alive. If uh, I don't think he would have. Don't you ever sell him short, son. Well, Mom would never have let him. You couldn't blame her, could you? 
When did you enlist? Well, it wasn't quite like that. See, I was drafted. Oh? It's not that I didn't want to go. I just wanted to finish school first. Where were we in school? First year, the Ilium School of Optometry. An optometrist, huh? That's a very good field. Yes, it is, because you're doing things for people, and there'll always be a need for optometrists. Well, what you just said, son, is a very good philosophical way of life. What? I mean, about filling a need and helping people. Well, that's self-determination and free enterprise backing itself up all the way. That's why we're in Europe, stopping Hitler. My name's Edgar Derby, son. What's yours? <laughs> Billy Pilgrim. Billy, it's nice to have you aboard. <laughs> so, yeah, the... the... The first thing is Darby's a really nice guy, and the second thing is Darby's quite animated, which possibly, maybe, maybe actually he gets that from being a teacher. Maybe that's why he decides to kind of get Billy's. Obviously, probably twice, but old, old, yeah. old, definitely old enough to be Darby's son, and takes him under his wing, and also and admires, you know, Billy's kind of altruistic uh, point of view. What, like, what did you guys think of Darby? Did you yeah, think I really liked. I really took Darby. I think I think Darby was a real guy as well, which makes it kind of quite poignant. Like, but. Oh. Um, he, um, yeah, he's, he's just a lovely, a lovely guy who maybe isn't the best leader, but he, he does he does try really hard, and he's mm. uh, he's got all the best intentions at heart. And uh, at, a... at first, I probably said more about about uh, about me and this kind of. What's the first? I thought he was trying to do something, like take advantage of oh. Billy um, in the film. Anyway, um, I thought he uh, when he brought him the soup, and Billy said, "You can go." And uh, you don't have to stay here, and he said, "No, I'd like to stay here." And I thought, "Oh, what's he up to?" <laughs> yeah, but then it just turned out he's just a really nice guy. Yeah, I was like, "Oh, for shame, Paul." Why is he in? Why does he stay? I mean, I would have thought that once you kind of reached forty, they would say, "No, like you can't be in the army." I mean, like, like can you just say? Well, apparently, he pulled. A, he had a couple of political friends, and he pulled the like he he, he, strings he, he properly wanted to be in the fucking yeah, army. Yeah, he wanted to defeat fascism. And, Mm, and, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, we got George Orwell like as a real life kind of like version of that. Like he yeah. wanted to go to yeah, the Second World War, but he yeah. wasn't allowed to. He's right, Hemingway as well, and like got a converted his fishing boat into like a battle like, cruiser, like, boat hunter. Yeah, and he used to go and try and hunt U boats. I don't think he ever caught any, but <laughs> Why actually, actually uh, claimed to liberate Paris as well. Huh. Um, he uh, liberated a hotel bar and. <laughs> And a bookshop. <laughs> of course, he did. Personally, liberated bookshop in a bar. Um, why was Orwell not allowed to? He was too old. Yeah, he had like um, was it pneumonia? He died from or tuberculosis, something like that. I think he, he fought in the Spanish Civil War, didn't he? Yeah, I was going to yeah. say like that's the other like uh, good example. Like he volunteered. He actually got yeah. off his arse and went to Spain. Yeah, yeah. So did Auden. Although Auden, Auden yeah. drove the ambulances for the for the anarchists. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Did he, was it for the anarchists or was it the Soviet groups or the? I think it was for the. What are they called? The CDN, CND, CNT. Uh, yeah. Um, he, he was a Orwell joint because I know he ended up kind of not liking them. I yeah, I can't remember. Um, I think it was because they were the Soviet influenced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know a lot of those groups got swept up by the. Was it POUM or something? Like Maybe I can't, I can't remember the yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, back back to Darby. Uh, the like, the Nazis like clearly and specifically say, if you're found stealing anything from the wreckage, mm-hmm. you'll be shot. Yeah. Now, if I was if I was an American POW and a big massive ridiculous Nazi said that to me, I would go. Yeah. 
even if I fucking find the Mona Lisa, I am not doing anything. Yeah, I keep yeah. my hands clean. But like the, the like 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 the first thing Darby finds, he, yeah. he puts it in his pocket and is immediately spotted, spotted and lined up against the wall and shot. And it's obviously around around a stain is a really nice guy, but you kinda of think I mean You know, like you knew you knew that would happen to you, but yeah, you still didn't. Exactly, yeah. You could see like even in the film, even if, like in the book, Vonnegut says it straight off that uh, in the first chapter that Darby dies. But uh, in the film you can just see it happen straight off because you know Absolutely. It's, you know it's a uh, like Chekhov's gone kind of idea. You know? Yeah. Um, that's another difference actually the in the film he's just lined up and shot but in the book it tells you he goes through a, a trial a trial yeah. and instead of a instead of a wee doll it's a teapot he yeah that's yeah. right yeah. do you agree yeah. do you agree that there's a there's a limited amount of sympathy for Darby to be had for no yeah no I thought that as well as soon as he like, especially in the film actually because um, I couldn't really remember it as such I remember him being shot um, I just because it was about a month ago I couldn't remember the exact reason I remember just watching it on the screen and going what are you doing? Idiot. <laughs> Put it away. Like, like at least hide it or something. Yeah, and they go, yeah. oh, look at this. <laughs> um, but hey, everybody. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the, it's, it's, uh, that's actually a, um, a, a really beautifully shot sequence in the, in the, in the film it because is, yeah. he, he's, he's showing it to Billy and then the, the two um, Nazi kind of commandants, they say, oh, you know, like, what, what, what do you have there? They, they, they take it off him and then the two and then, like the two younger Nazi soldiers take him away, and then there's kind of um, in in the foreground follows the Nazi officers walking up a hill, and in the background you can see Darby being marched off, and they're kind of walking off and making really general comments about how nice the the thing is, and yeah. then in the background Darby's just lined up and shot. Yeah, do they um, not throw it away? Do, do they throw it away? I think, I think they might. Yeah, I think, I think they, they just do, yeah. it away. Do they throw it away? I think, I think they, right? they sort of sort of look at it and they sort of. Um, Maybe admire it, or maybe make some comments on it, but then they do you just throw it away, and like, yeah. it's, it's worthless. Like. But see, I obviously didn't notice that because because I was concentrating because in the background, Darby is being shot, and the, you know, so it's I thought it's I thought that was a really really nice kind of yeah piece of cinematography. It, it is, was, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, it definitely mm. was. But yeah. the, that whole like the whole German bit, the whole Dresden like scene, like well, you can't really describe it as a scene because there's so many different like cuts. Mm-hmm. That like when I was reading the book. It's exactly how I pictured it. Yeah. I thought that's a good testament to the director anyway, I don't know. I mean, like it just looked exactly as I thought it would be. Yeah, mm-hmm. completely desolate. Yeah. And, like he says uh, something about he compares it like the surface of the moon or something, I can't remember. Yeah, he talks about the surface of the moon. Yeah. Um, just I, I thought they got that spot on. And yeah. I think it like maybe not so much the rest of it. In terms of the cast, yes. But I don't know if I really pictured the rest of the film like that. Um me, I don't know about mm. Trafalgar or that. I uh, Trafalgar, I, I didn't think. Um, I, I, I didn't know what to expect of Trafalgar, but uh, yeah, it's not how I pictured it. But um, at the same time, license taken, I suppose. You know. Mm. Um, yeah, but that's it's kind of interesting comparing those because there are there are a few differences uh, between the book and the. Film, obviously, as I've said, I watched the film first, so it was kind of interesting reading the book and um, going, "Oh my god!" Like, they, so they are going to show this bit, and there were there were lines of dialogue that were that were verbatim, you know, yeah, put, yeah. put in the film where you just just kept it completely. But yeah, I've actually got the the, the uh, Wikipedia page open, um, and 
that kind of says the differences. But one of the main differences is that Kilgore Trout isn't in the yeah. film. But Paul, like I seem to remember from the last one, you you actually said, "I wonder will Kilgore Trout be in it?" Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so were you kind of looking forward to seeing him in the film? I was. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'd love to see what he actually looks like. I've got a, I've got an idea of what he looks like. Um, I think I think there is like white hair and a white beard. Yeah, yeah. It just like uh, I actually there's there's a, 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 a madman who lives in Belfast too. I think it looks probably like Kilgore Trout. But uh, I think there is a, a film of uh, Breakfast Champions, which I, I assume Kilgore Trout must be in. But uh, I think Kilgore Trout does actually get a very subtle reference in uh, in this in Slaughterhouse Five right film. Um, there's a bit where. Uh, where Billy wakes up in a hospital and his mother is uh, sitting by his bed. Yeah. And he's, Billy, you can come out now. Yeah, he's wrapped up in a blanket and she's talking to uh, Mr. Rosewater yeah. uh, in the next bed and that's Elliot Rosewater from uh, my previous novel, God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, who uh, basically was a, a millionaire who wanted to give all his money away to help people and everyone thought he was mad and he eventually then was driven mad by by this but he had this obsession with Kilgore Trout novels and it sort of just the camera sort of like sinks down on his bed and he's holding a wee sci-fi novel which I think I couldn't get a proper look at but I assume must have been a uh, a Kilgore Trout novel because mm. he was he was uh, as obsessed with the Trout as Pilgrim becomes and yeah what what, what what is the crack with Kilgore Trout because when it, because whenever you said oh, oh I'm assuming he must be in the movie I was I thought oh well Kilgore Trout must be a very big character but but, but, my, but my, my first point is that he, he's not a very big character and my second point is I think I might possibly have already forgotten what my second point was going to be <laughs> my second point was when, whenever he meets the guy called Kilgore Trout is uh, that actually Kilgore Trout the author or not? Well Kilgore Trout is basically Vonnegut's long term alter ego in, in his own his own novels um, he is just a sci-fi writer who just just writes these these sort of trashy novels, but that always have some, some, like serious depth of of um, philosophical um, sort of weight, but um, but are just uh, he just treats them as throwaway trash novels. So he doesn't even think about them after he's written them. They some of them get published, some of them don't. Um, Pulp fiction kind of. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I think it's the stuff that Vonnegut would would love to be able to write, but it would never be treated seriously. I mean, like Vonnegut himself was was maybe not treated that seriously by the literary establishment all the time because I think things like um, sci-fi elements or genre fiction elements are sort of uh, seen as a little bit too inelegant for literary fiction but uh, <laughs> mm. like I think with every page Vonnegut finds some, some deep truth that I think is like warrants exactly what he was doing you know? Isn't that always the way though? I mean and, you know in the yeah. kind of mid-1700s the 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 novel as an art form itself was seen as trite and unimportant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And now look at the novel. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I find that with like reading sci-fi, I love reading sci-fi authors, mm-hmm. and but it's not gonna like have the same sort of elegant prose as like you know the classics. Like you know, it's yeah. just never going to. Yeah. But I don't see why that should be a thing. But I, I think they're nice wee art forms. Within yeah. Themselves. Well, I think yeah. I think that's what um, a lot of novelists then started to do was marry the elegant prose with the. Outlandish tales, and I think that's what what Kilgore Trout sort of represents. But yeah. um, but I I think that Vonnegut does do it because when, when I mean Vonnegut does do it, yeah. By, by I would read 
I, I would read Stephen King the odd time, and you know, S- Stephen King's written stuff that has actually like literally made me not want to turn the page, and has like given me goosebumps and yeah, nightmares, yeah. and you know that that fear that you get when you get home at late at night and there's no one else in the house and you've watched a horror film for the first time and you're absolutely shitting yourself. Like he's he's given me that through his books. Mm-hmm. Yet at times his prose is so bad that it's I actually I actually and, cringe. Yeah, it, it is clunky and inelegant, and it's yeah. It's, but I I. I mean, I've only I've only read Slaughterhouse Five, but to me, he seems like a, an accomplished modernist author. A very, very, very accomplished author, a brilliant pro stylist, and uh, and um, yeah, a, a, a really, really astonishing author at times. Um, was like while we're on this point, we should note that the and so it goes never appears in the film. No, that's right. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah, that's um, and that's the that's just the, the sort of. Pulse of the book, so it goes. I've got one reference saying it's me, it's said 116 times, yeah. and another reference saying it's said 179 times. I've no idea. 79. Uh, no, uh, uh, 179. 179. Yeah, Jeez. which is quite a leap. <laughs> for my for my copy yeah. anyway, um, more more than twice it or more than once a page. It's yeah. after every sort of. Uh, death. It's any time yeah, death. death. Yeah, well. e- even yeah. if it's like a slaughter. Like he's, he's just talking about the animals that were held in the slaughterhouse. Yeah, and yeah he, he, even right. he, even then he says yeah. so it goes. But I I have to say, um, I think I had a few drinks the night before, so I was maybe a bit hungover. But the 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 answer it goes really started to get in my tits after a while. Right. I, 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 I after a while, I like I thought it became like it went from being poignant to being very funny and. Uh, after a while, I actually dreaded reading it. It actually, yeah. st- it actually started to annoy me reading it over and over again. I, yeah. I, I thought it sounded very clumsy, and I thought it was a, probably the worst right. thing about yeah. about the book. Oh yeah, no, right. It, right. it, it really, really annoyed me. I genuinely liked it. I don't know what it was. I just like really liked coming across this again, like reminding you that another horrible things happened. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I think I've probably seen similar devices employed by other writers, and it's worked. But I thought. I don't think Vonnegut nailed it. I don't think he did. I think yes. he, I think he tried, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't. It he he doesn't pull it off for me. Well, for me, it kind of fit the narrative that the Chalhamadorians were going on about. It harked into that same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yeah, this is what happens. It'll always happen, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. These unfortunate events, like you can't do anything about them. And, you know, and so it goes. Um, but I always thought it was like well, there was one particular one I remember. Uh, well, I don't remember it exactly, but it was about Jesus and like how he was a carpenter or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> and how it was something he built led to the death of someone. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, what is that? It's uh, is it someone that's executed? Like, did he help? Yeah, build this device or something. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. But, ah, it, but, it, yeah. but there's a point anyway in the end is that like it just you can't explain these things and it fits into mm. the narrative of the whole thing in the first place Yeah, because you can't even try to wrap your head around why these horrible things happen Yeah, so it's a nice sort of wee phrase and I know it like it's constant and might get annoying but like it <laughs> kind of fits like yeah. you know it really does work like, mm-hmm. because these constant annoying things are present in everyday life yeah and also like I think in, in war death becomes a banality you know and this is this is marking marking what should be a a very traumatic event with a wee flippant statement that uh, then becomes so much so so repetitive that it becomes absurd and uh, 
you know the the idea of war and death itself then or death in war becomes absurd you know mm. i think it's like like uh, we confront death as well we do it with mm. banalities and yeah. like kind of these absurd phrases like you just can't really escape them it's like every yeah. modern like human or not modern sorry every human event is confronted with these cliched banal phrases mm -hmm. mm. there's always something for it like oh happy birthday well done yeah, yeah. Or, you know you got a job promotion well done yeah congratulations yeah. <laughs> blah 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 you know it's always the same well, that's thing, what I kind of liked it you know? yeah one thing I can't stand and this is how miserable I am I often kind of refuse to do <laughs> I hate when it like in, in work I hate people saying good morning Oh, because yeah. I see you every day. Why do I need to say good morning <laughs> every single day? Like you come into the office, everyone goes, good morning. And it's like, I don't need that. I don't need a good morning from you. And you don't need a good morning from me because I know you and I know that I like you and you know that you like me and we're friends. So why do we have to say good morning to each other? I well, it's, it's part of like the sort of intense uh, tactical relationship with everybody as well. If you don't say it, then maybe you're a bit of a dick and, like, within <laughs> yeah. that group. And it's like, it kind of fits into the whole game theory thing as well. Should you set certain people and shouldn't you get away with it? Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, uh, human culture is weird in that respect. Yeah. There's certain things you have to engage with, even though they yeah. may seem banal upon analysis. It was like when I lived in Germany, and they are really into saying Gesundheit every time you sneeze. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like... It, it means health, so like they're wishing you health just in case the reason you're sneezing is because you've done instead of a cold, they're wishing you good health. But yeah. it got to the point where I would actually try and avoid sneezing in public because I hated it. There would just be some person <laughs> across the room having a beer and you would sneeze and they would turn around and say, Gesundheit to you. Shut up, mind your own business. When I, uh, <laughs> when I lived with a couple of guys after university, uh, my good friend Neil. Uh, still has a habit of always bless you every <laughs> sneeze really loudly and I remember getting out of the shower one time and sneezing and the shower was above the bathroom was above the kitchen and I sneezed in the bathroom and from the kitchen below I heard him go bless you and I opened the window and shouted shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> and I, I closed the window and I thought to myself that was totally totally uncalled for Jesus <laughs> Was that the nearest you'll ever get to Colin back? Yeah. <laughs> well, I completely sympathise with you yeah. here because you saying bless you isn't going to have any tangible know, effect yeah. on anything. Yeah. It's not. It's, if I am ill, it's not going to stop me from being ill. I don't care whether or not you're you're worried about my health because you've heard me sneeze. So stop fucking saying bless yeah. you. <laughs> Brilliant, oh. be nice. But, <laughs> I just think life is filled with it, like when. Like, I don't know if the word suits, but maybe it is applicable. Like, it is filled with banalities, though. Like, every human interaction is always going to be the same. For mm -hmm. the most part, like, you're not going to yeah. get anything unique. So, like, when you analyze it a lot, you'll go, oh, like, I can't believe people do this all the time. Why do we have to do this? But then you'll get to the point where you just don't communicate with anyone after yeah. a while because yeah. you think that's banal. Yeah. <laughs> so it's almost like just keeping, keeping the lines of communication open when you've got nothing to actually communicate. But it's, it's like a symbolic... Yeah, it's like people talking about the weather. Yeah. yeah. It is symbolic. That's a good way to put it, actually. It's, it's all symbolic. Like, yes. Yeah. So, is that why when Billy's wife dies, he doesn't appear to give a fuck? I don't know about that. That's that's something that sort of um, I couldn't really get a grip on. Well, um, there's another question there. Marrying Valencia is the only thing Billy does mm -hmm. that appears a bit weird. 
Yeah, because he, he doesn't seem to want to. He's quite nice and honourable and honest the whole way through the film. Yeah. And you're kind of rooting for him. But whenever he, he wants to marry this woman, the, the only reason I can see that he marries her is because his because of his career, because it's going to yeah. further his career, because of who her dad is. But that seems out of character with, with the Billy and the rest of the book. So, yeah. so why does he marry her, and when she dies, why doesn't he give a shit? <coughs> I think that might have been a, a bit of an autobiographical um, uh, aspect of Vonnegut's point, uh, perspective. Because he, uh, I think around the time he wrote Slaughterhouse Five, maybe around the time that he started uh, going out with his second wife, but he was still married to his first wife, who he married as soon as he came home from uh, basically as soon as he came home from the war uh, and uh, <coughs> yeah they um, I, I, think, I don't think they, they really sort of lived together until like 1972 or something a couple of years after or around the time the film was made actually um, so maybe that had some more influence on it but um, certainly yeah. not explained in the film or, or, not, it, or, or no. in the book he just, he just sort of seems to fall into this passively fall into this marriage and even when his wife is coming out and like you know bringing him, she's obviously completely, completely infatuated with him. Uh, she's like baking him cakes and stuff, and um, bringing him like dinner and stuff. And all he wants to do is play with the dog. And uh, yeah, it's strange. And he doesn't seem to care about the birth of his kids either. But was that not the point of it? Or like, or like what I got from the book, anyway, is there's just this character that plods along and happens yeah. to fall into things. I don't think it's yeah him particularly being like a dick or anything or. Yeah, I think he like that's the point of it. Like he just this pathetic. Well, like maybe pathetic is a strong word, but he just just falls into these things. Passive. Yeah, yeah he passive. sort of just exists outside of human. Yeah, um, I mean, he doesn't join the army. He's drafted. Like yeah. motion. He doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't own a gun, so he does. He doesn't have a gun, so kind yeah. of carefully chosen his role in the war, whereby he doesn't really have a say in anything that happens to him because right. he, he doesn't kill anyone he doesn't run away mm-hmm. he's he wants them to leave him by the tree so he can die but they force him then the yeah. Nazis pick him up so it, pretty much everything that happens to him in the film apart from maybe deciding to go to optometry school pretty much everything that happens to him in the film he doesn't actually, really have any say in actually it's like it's very like that Isherwood thing where like uh, I am a camera you know uh, uh, Goodbye to Berlin you know became cabaret uh, he um, just yeah he's just a camera he just he's, he describes himself as a camera and he just films everything without engaging in it and uh, that's he's an optometrist so yeah. maybe that's where the, the um, could be Trelfamadorians pick him because yeah they, I mean, they, they don't have any concept of free will and Billy is doesn't doesn't display yeah, any does, free yeah, will at all yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could be on something, yeah. Maybe that's why they pick them. I was like, yeah, I was kind of thinking about this the other day, about, like, you know, with our sort of modern day and what careers people fall into. I think if you go back 30 years, it's maybe slightly different. Like, a lot of white middle-class people probably fall into careers that their parents have set up for them or they have yeah. contacts through other people. But now there's a lot of people who are on equal footing who, like, have to try and find something for themselves mm-hmm. because, well, they live in a shitty economy, like, for the most part. Mm-hmm. But, um... It's sort of like it reminded me of Death of a Salesman in a way, like when it talks about the American dream and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. I think the Billy Pilgrim thing is an example of what people think the American dream is. Uh-huh. That, you know, anybody can get something, but they can't really. There's a certain subset of people can get this thing yeah. because they're born into it. And because there's only so much bread. Yeah, and it's yeah. accessible to them. So he's a sort of typical white middle class American 
and it's all set up for him, and he just falls into it. Like, you know, yeah, it's, it's just a domino, like mm-hmm. a domino effect. I don't know if it's a good yeah. description, but it just it kind of falls into it. Like, you know, that's his life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good, yeah, good way to put it. But whereas it's kind of opposite to like death of a salesman where he's just he's trying to reach that kind of goal and just everyone yeah, and it won't let him yeah. <laughs> but the, the death of his wife is is strange um, yeah. and she's rushing to his bedside and dies of carbon monoxide poison in the, in the car and it, and it really sort of like almost like a Benny Hill kind of like yeah. <laughs> I, I have to say I I enjoyed that I enjoyed that way better in the in the in the movie yeah. because it, it explains I think in the in the film it just says or sorry in the book it just says the guy the Mercedes drives into the back of her a Mustang and I know right. I, I know it begins with M but the the car drives into the back of her she says something about needing to go to the hospital drives off and by the time she gets to the hospital she's dead whereas in the film. You have the whole thing of her like driving down the, the wrong yeah. way and yeah. going onto the freeway in the wrong way and, and then the police like car coming. Style, like pileups and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the, the, the most fantastic thing about the whole thing is that you you go through the whole thing and you see the, the car just getting absolutely fucked up and the car is a complete wreck. And then the next scene is her receiving the car on her birthday. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so, because, you know, you don't have any idea where the, where the cars come from. You just, okay, it's their car, yeah. whatever. But then whenever it suddenly flips back, yeah, it's really clever because it shows... Your, it, that, that's the bit where she wakes up and he's got the, the yellow ribbon. Yeah, And she follows right, yeah. it out and it's this whole big special thing and she loves it. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and then we... But we already know. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose like the yellow ribbon is sort of symbolic of her following this ribbon to to her death. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? She's just completely Yeah. Yeah. Um that actually there was a, another weird like weird I, I think that came must have come from like this odd autobi- autobiographical thing of which was his um his sister was uh, his sister died of cancer, but when she was dying of cancer that very same week, just before she died, her husband was getting a train, maybe to maybe to see her. I'm not sure. I was getting uh, some commuter train anyway, which derailed, and he was killed. Holy crap! And then she died like a couple of days later, and then uh, Monica had to raise her three kids along with his own sort of three or four kids. Whoa! Um, which was was nuts. <laughs> it was totally totally nuts. And I think that some of that. Uh, the first time I read it, uh, I didn't know that, and then I, I learned that since, and then that echoed with me when I came across it again. Like. That's what I liked about the book version of that, though. Like nature has no time for coincidence. Like it treats yeah, it with yeah. like well, indifference. Like what do you mean? Treat, treats anything with indifference. It doesn't have an attitude. But you know what I mean. It doesn't like doesn't have any reverence for the coincidence. Uh, I the same sense. Yeah. Just happened. It's not yeah. a you, like, like, yeah, that comes back to the and so it goes kind of thing. Yeah, so um, that whole thing about uh, his wife dying on the way to the hospital yeah. to see him, it's just like treated as just something that happens. Yeah. Whereas in the, the film, it's this whole drawn out, like, yeah. as Paul says, Benny Hill sequence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I kind of like that in the book, I think, because it's just, just, it just happens. Yeah. Good, like, that's get over it. Well, not get over it, but like, you know. Like yeah, uh, Darby. Um, don't, don't read it. It just, uh, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. just happens. Although, actually, I just have read into it, but I mean, it's, uh, yeah, you're right. It's um, just the, these these bizarre, horrible circumstances. Yeah. Are nothing, nothing other than just bizarre, horrible circumstances. Yeah. Um, 
There's another bizarre, horrible circumstance. So Billy Pilgrim's dad is killed when he's in a hunting accident when he's in uh, when Billy's in the war. Yeah. And uh, when Vonnegut was a prisoner of war, um, his mother committed suicide on Mother's Day, um, which also seemed to yeah echo with that. Like, but um, yeah. And actually, then Vonnegut made a couple of other references to that to suicide well numerous references to suicide throughout his work then and I did read and I don't know if it's true but uh, I did read somewhere that uh, he he died of a head injury but that it was related Who did? to Vonnegut in real life died of a head injury he fell down the stairs in his house or steps outside his house and um, I read that he had tried to kill himself like a couple of weeks before and uh, was was taken to the hospital and was sort of resuscitated and uh, he'd taken over something like and then but he never really recovered and was weak in state and then fell down the stairs and, and died so Terrible. he just managed to kill himself over a much longer period of time <laughs> I don't know if that's that's actually true though it's really funny in, but like that's like, I know it's horrible <laughs> yeah I know it's a kind of weird <laughs> dark dark thing that he'd laugh about like uh, but um yeah, I read it. There's just like a biography of him, which is his family sort of contest, but that's. Like, oh really? Kind of thing, yeah. Oh, like, yeah. Hmm, that's interesting then, because like you were saying, like he kind of explores suicide in a lot of his other works. So, yeah, you, so yeah. do you think it's it's kind of like a running theme? Definitely. It's like it, it's 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 not a coincidence that no, that it's a. No, I don't think so. Um, uh, I think uh, he actually, and I think in *Confession of Mr. Rosewater*. Um, he says uh, one of the characters' mothers had committed suicide when he was in a war or something. The exact same circumstances. And he, he said that the son of a suicide victim always, always has in the back of their mind that they will also one day commit suicide, and then, which was really haunting, like given the circumstances. Hmm. So. Yeah. Stuff like that, for some reason, always reminds me of Star Trek, specifically the Klingons. <laughs> like, um, I probably yeah. always have a reference to Star Trek, but like, <laughs> just their sort of narrative on death, like yeah. the way the Klingons have to die, it's like you always have to have a warrior's death. Yeah, and Anything yeah. outside of that is just, like, it's seen as pathetic, so if you, I don't know, die of a stroke or something, yeah. <laughs> your yeah. family will be disgraced. <laughs> yeah. It's a good way of indoctrinating people. But, yeah, I, didn't, but, I didn't expect you to say... Uh, Star Trek there but, uh, <laughs> but actually a big but, sense uh, yeah. but just that sort of general narrative about death and like stuff like that it's just like you know for some yeah. reason it's seen as pathetic to die from like natural causes as most yeah. people mm-hmm. would like, um, yeah it's it's weird how a narrative's created around it like you know even though it won't matter to you because you won't be there yeah but for the Klingons it does like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I know yeah like I, I suppose it's like that old old idea of like a warrior's death and like you know it, anything up to the First World War and sort of including the First World War was, uh, was seen as, as glorious and he died in yeah. it, I don't think Billy Pilgrim would have that attitude no I don't think so I don't, I don't know if Billy Pilgrim would have any sort of attitude to death I don't think yeah, he does mm. no he doesn't he just seems he indifferent to death, yeah. Yeah, he, he does which, which is a, and he talks about it as he's dying that's a completely Telfamadorian tra- way of looking at it because yeah. e- e- even if even if you die now, you are, you're alive in the pre- you're you're alive in the past. Yeah. So like like you're always alive somewhere. Um, in in, in fact, um, I've got a clip of of Billy just waking up on Trafalgar and the kind of before you, aliens before play the talking clip, about him. Yeah. I think we were talking about like why he didn't feel any grief for his wife, and I think it's because mm-hmm. of that. 
Yeah. But I mean, whenever whenever Darby gets shot, he he, he reacts quite strongly. He kind of goes, "No, don't!" and kind of runs runs towards them. Um, I find that strange as well. Does he do that in the book? I can't remember. Darby's death isn't really given as much attention. It's kind of it's kind of said in the past tense. It just kind of says he was tried and eventually shot. Mm. So it doesn't really. We don't really know what Billy's attitude was to, to it was. No, but in the book he goes no. You know, it's like properly yeah. in the book, or sorry, in the in the, in the, the film. Uh, film. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't even seem to give that like that much of a fuck about um, his son, isn't it, Robert? Yeah. Whenever he, whenever he, yeah. whenever he pulls pushes over all the all the tombstones, I know he just, just he just goes, oh yeah, like how much? Yeah, and that's yeah. what he bribes him to say, oh, yeah, yeah. and I'd like to make a contribution to your uh, <laughs> just yeah. Fund or so yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, sure. Let's listen to Billy waking up on. Yeah, uh, Cool. What's happened? Where am I? Welcome to the planet Tralfamador, Mr. Pilgrim. Tralfamador? Tralfamador. Tralfamador. Oh. How did I get here? There is no how, Mr. Pilgrim. There is no why. The moment simply is. I don't understand. Where are you? Oh, you can't see us, Mr. Pilgrim. We live in the fourth dimension. But we can see you, and there are many important Tralfamadorians here to welcome you. Oh, well, uh, how do you do? We hope that you'll find your accommodations here suitable. I have to stay here? I'm afraid so. You mean, I can't leave of my own free will? Mr. Pilgrim, we have visited 31 inhabited planets in the universe. We have studied reports on a hundred more. And only on Earth is there any talk of free will. Well, what'll I do? That, that notion of um, free will only, accept, only existing uh, on Earth, that kind of actually brings me back to why he's not upset about his wife dying. At the, at the very end of the film, when he's giving a speech, you know, where he knows that is going to come and shoot him, and he's giving a speech, it's one of the last scenes in the film, I think, and he says something like, he says, basically, tonight Lazaro is going to keep his promise, and loads of, people, loads of people are going, oh no, oh my god, what are we going to do? And he says something to the effect of, if you're sad about me dying, then you haven't listened to a word that I've said. Yeah. So, I think that that is what it is. Um, Billy has the Chalfamadorian outlook on life, so yeah. Yeah. death doesn't make him sad. But it still doesn't explain why he's, why he's upset about Darby dying. No. I think, I don't know, yeah. It's funny, I suppose... I suppose that happens, so... He, he only starts to... Um, become unstuck in time um, during the war so maybe he hasn't um, experienced the top you know sort of way of our you know right, by the time his wife's died by, by yeah. the time his wife's died he's already been to Trafalmador yeah yeah hmm I think the first time he goes to Trafalmador is when he it's his daughter's birth or his daughter's wedding mm-hmm. so I don't know I don't know um it's hard hard to keep track of the, the timeline because yeah. 
But that's what I don't really understand about it. Like, did he ever jump back? Or would he have jumped back when he was a kid or anything? Because obviously there's that swimming pool scene. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know, like, maybe that's him jumping back. But at the same time, would he not have experiences of jumping in and out at some point? Because life is, like, one that's not linear. It's mm-hmm. At some point before... Yeah, before the Second World War, you mean? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I know. So those memories could be brought with that time travel, possibly. I don't, I don't know. Like, are the experiences brought back? Does they experience everything at once? I, I, I think. No yeah, idea. I think experiences are brought back in time. But then, because yeah, that would make sense with the plane. Yeah. Anyway, like, um, there's always problems with time travel. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they can never be explained, but it kind of like. It brings up the plane anyway, where he just remembers. Yeah. You know, when he's getting on. Or does it? I don't know. He, I'm not sure if he, yeah, if he remembers or he has like a sort of premonition. Kind of yeah, because he, he sort of sees the skiers like flash up. And. Yeah, that's he, weird. He, he realizes, it's not like he remembers, he just he realizes or something. Um, yeah. The, the, I think the, the, when I saw the film. I thought that the skiers were the aliens. I thought they were the Transformadorians. Yeah, well, actually, at first... But in the book, it's... um, He actually describes them as, like, gollywogs. Um, But not not in a racist way. He's he's, uh, saying that um, it's because he can't see their faces. Uh, Ah, yeah, So he kind of... And obviously, you can tell by the way it's written, obviously, obviously Vonnegut is a bit of a lefty, so... Yeah, yeah. He's obviously not calling them gollywogs because he's a... Right. Because he's because he's a a dick. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like a kind of um, almost sarcastic way of, of describing of describing these these guys who, whose yeah. faces are completely covered up and Aye. Uh, and then they're yeah. they're kind of hoping through the bodies and speaking German, so he thinks that he is back in the Second World War, and that's why that's whenever right. they come up to him, all he's saying is Schlachthof fünf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and because they're Austrian, they can understand them. This we're going. What the fuck is what a slaughterhouse spy? Yeah. What a bizarre thing to say. Yeah. yeah. Next time I pass out the snow, I'm going to just say slaughter off food. Does that happen to often? Yeah. <laughs> Next Christmas. time I pass out in the snow, Christmas night I always have a fall. <laughs> One too many sherry's. Yeah. <laughs> it has happened. Yeah, me too. Um. um is it, is it a work of sci-fi? Do you think? Um, it, see it as sci-fi. Yeah. There's, there are sci-fi elements or elements you would associate with sci-fi, but certainly the book. I honestly would. I honestly would not say it was sci-fi. Be- no. Because especially because it's so ambiguous as to whether or not it's just yeah kind of an allegory of life and memory and knowledge and human experience. In, in the film, it's 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 far more explicitly an alien abduction time travel thing. But even then. I think it's still focused a bit more on um, the uh, Second World War aspect. Yeah, and we've kind of talked about both they live and enemy my, enemy mine on this, and none, none of the films did very well. And both of the films, both or all of those films, tried to tried to be two things at once. Aye. And Slaughterhouse Five definitely tries to be two two things at once. And the problem that I found with with the film anyway was that. The bits in the Second World War are so poignant, especially like Dresden and the, the relationships and the acting and and the direction and everything about it is so poignant and it does not date at all. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get to the Trafalgarian 
parts and that, that kind of voice going, hello, Mr. Pilgrim, we are, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it then verges into, um, what do you call that? Uh, this is, it's one of those things where your mind's gone blank and it's, it's uh, you know, the, sci- the British sci-fi thing about the guy in his dressing gown and slippers? Hitchhiker's Guide. Yeah. It, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of verges on that, yeah. or Doctor Who, and, and, yeah. and that's the part of the film that dates. I suppose, yeah, the book. And for me, it jars. Yeah. yeah. I know what you mean, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but I think, like, I was saying this to you, like, a wee while ago, um, about how, like, when they go, <coughs> in the film anyway, when they're on Drop Amador, um, did you notice in the background, Paul, that, like, um, had Jupiter in the background. Yeah, yeah. I, it was like, I don't know if that would be yeah. a big thing went back when it was made because I don't think you're as exposed to it. But just being on the internet, I know what Jupiter looks like now. Yeah. It's <laughs> like Jupiter looks like Jupiter. Every time I say it, I'll just go, that's Jupiter. Because <laughs> um, like, I remember picking out like, the Algebra S out of your book collection just to show oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because um, yeah. Jupiter's in the background. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, like, and Trafalmador is described as... It's like it's millions of light years yeah. away, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Whereas like Jupiter's not well, it's not close, but it's yeah. closer than that. Like, so to me, it's kind of a, like a jar in that respect. But whereas the scenes in Dresden are unbelievably like uh, like accurate, like to me anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, brilliant, and just, yeah. brilliantly done and really responsibly done. Yeah, oh definitely. Yeah. So it's maybe just, but maybe that's like all sort of older sci-fi now. You know, it's. Looking towards the future is never going to be accurate. Like, I suppose so. It's it's like that bit at the end of um, Star Wars Episode Three, when you you've had this ridiculous CGI battle, but it's almost like the film suddenly remembers it has to link up with Episode Four, which was made in nineteen seventy seven. So all all the, all the CGI goes, and you're just like this weird, really dated seventies look. It's almost like that. Yeah. But Paul, I mean, what, what do you think? Like, do you, do you consider the book a sci fi book or the film a sci fi film? Uh, Primarily, no, anyway. No, no, I don't. I, I think it's a, it's a war film that just incorporates something that a couple of like narrative elements you would normally associate with sci-fi, but aren't aren't uh, they aren't necessarily sci-fi at all. No. Um, <clears throat> What's your attitude to whether or not it, it, he is he is traveling back in time or whether he's just kind of crazy in either the book or the film? I'm not sure. I think I think he. I like I like to think he is sort of unstuck in time and he is uh, going back and forth, but I I don't know I don't think it I don't think it really matters too much because I think basically what actually matters is what he sort of discovers about humanity and about um, about the sort of the, the truth of war and death and um, and how it. Uh, yeah, well, how he conveys it to us and how we it reflects upon upon what we already thought about death and so, and I think I think it 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 achieves that remarkably well. But I, I don't think it needs. I don't think you need to believe it or disbelieve the sort of sci-fi element to uh, to take that from it. Hmm. Yeah, I think there's two readings and like well, with the book anyway. But I think it's more sci-fi with the film. At least that's yeah. what I've gathered. I don't know if you guys thought that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it's the ambiguity is definitely sort of is is gone or is lessened in the film anyway. Mm-hmm. Especially with the really dodgy uh, special effects scene in his bedroom. Yeah, well, you yeah, can, you yeah. Can see the spaceship in, yeah, the, in the big, sky. The yeah, white light. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that the, the only like criticisms I can have of the film and like it's not really a proper criticism is just because it was made back then. 
uh, scene with the plane crash mm-hmm. because it's just like obviously they couldn't come up with anything <laughs> yeah, yeah. good for that like because there wasn't like CGI <laughs> yeah. it really there. is just the yeah. camera yeah. <laughs> <laughs> twirling and, oh, and the other one that I just mentioned with the big white light that comes into the yeah. room and yeah. it seems to sort of like come through the curtains and everything <laughs> <laughs> do you know did you guys also think uh, I, I found old Billy to be quite mm. quite blatantly a young man definitely yeah the guy who plays Billy is Michael Sachs and he at the time they were filming Sachs was only 11 months older than his on screen daughter who's played by Holly Near. And he was, and he was actually four months younger than Perry King, who plays Robert, his son. Yeah, um, this is interesting. <laughs> I, I didn't yeah. think it was too bad until they made him really old. Like, yeah, I thought he was yeah. all right, like this middle age. Like mm. obviously he was a young man, like when they filmed it. But when he was kind of middle age, it was fine because they seemed to do the like receding hairline. Yeah, quite well, yeah. I thought. Yeah. But when they make him really old, it just looks. He just looks like a guy with a disease. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, what about as an anti-war movie? How, how do you think it works as an anti-war movie? Um, yeah, I'd say it's very effective as an anti-war movie because um, there is absolutely no glorification, really, at, at, at all, uh, of anything. And similarly, the Nazis don't treat them particularly badly, um, relatively speaking, anyway, considering what they do to the Russians and obviously what they do to the... Um, to Jewish people and gay people. In fact, actually, side note, supposedly the novel was the first to recognise that the Nazis exterminated gay people. Was it really? Yeah, because they call them um, fairies, I think. Yeah, yeah. In the novel, and I read that it was the first. But anyway, uh, as as an anti-war novel, um, or as an anti-war film... Yeah, I mean, it, it leaves you. It leaves you pretty repulsed by war. You're, mm. you're, you're not left. You're not left, kind of thinking that it was good that the British and the Americans went to fight the Nazis. You're kind of thinking it was shit that the entire thing had to happen. Yeah. And um, my main problem with Remembrance Day is that I feel it is hijacked by right wing twats <laughs> yeah. who kind of ruin. What what should be a day of remembering that all war is bad? Yeah. I feel that instead of yeah, where, where is it now? Is it but like isn't isn't this war? Isn't yeah, this war something to be really proud of. Like, exactly, it's almost like the first and the second world wars are considered good wars now. Yeah, that it was good that these wars happened because it was us fighting fascism, and we had like recently we had like a first first world war centenary yeah. or something, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, and. Yeah. I was kind of remember it might have been the Guardian, but there was an article about how some of the stuff that people were doing. It was like organize your own war themed coffee mornings, okay. you know, to raise money. And you're just like, Jesus, yeah. lads! Like, you know, have we completely forgotten what what war is? You yeah. know, and I think that when you leave both the film and the book, you're under no, you're under no pretensions. There's no romanticism. There's no kind of yeah. yeah. I think we do. I think we've brought this up in previous podcast episodes, especially like with stuff like you don't see what's happening like on the other side now, in, in the modern day age anyway. Like, you know, nobody knows what war is like. You know, like we just go to our jobs every day or yeah. watch reality television or soaps and we see bits and pieces on the news, but we don't really see what war is actually like. We're not engaged with it, like, you know. And I think that 
forges like a complete disconnect between the whole thing mm-hmm. and within that we're able to kind of romanticize it and think those things like you know it's noble and it's just and blah 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 like it may it may very well be just it could be reasons for that but it's brutal and depressing <laughs> for the most part yeah. yeah it's it's mm. a horrible, horrible thing, and I don't think we will ever realize that because we're not like we're not involved with it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, our experience of war for the most part is film or TV, yeah, and that's what we view it as. It's all made up, <laughs> yeah. So, but like as a as an anti-war film, yeah, it's. I think it is. I think that scene in particular where they're kind of. <clears throat> it's it's where Billy Pilgrim's carrying the dog upstairs, and mm-hmm. it's cutting in between them going up the out of the bunker. I thought that was pre- uh, pretty effective. Yeah. Quite you know well affective. Mm-hmm. Like I was kind of dreading them going upstairs and finding this massacre, yeah. just, like dead bodies and rubble, and then you finally see it all. It's it's as you see it in the book. Yeah. Yeah, and then the wee German kid. Um, what's he called? Gork or something like yeah, that, and he the the girl he fancies. He re- he realizes that she's obviously been bombed, and he yeah he runs to find her, and you you really feel for him. You really kind of you, you it's one of those if 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 you were in, ever in any doubt, it's one of those moments where you think he's not a Nazi. He's a sixteen year old boy yeah, who, who, who fancies girls who's been forced by Nazis yeah. to carry a gun. And they're all they're all kids and old men, like and uh, as the subtitle of the book is and the film is actually or the children's crusade. Yeah, and there's a there's a section where the one of the English officers says to him, "God, I, f- I forgot that I've been away from action so long. I forgot that it was babies that fought wars." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brutal. Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> but it it needs to be said. Yeah, yeah, I think. What about as a comedy film? What do you think it, it works as a comedy? Uh, I think I think there's there's a lot of comedic value in the character of Billy Pilgrim because of, he seems to confuse everyone who surrounds him. Yeah. Because he is so kind of apathetic and indifferent. What do you guys? But but when I'm thinking about the film, humor isn't the first thing that springs to mind. Although no. now that you've mentioned it, it is actually quite. Humorous. It, it it does underline and it's more or less within the novel. But uh, humor is is like the, well, the blackest humor possible. Like you say. Is is what sort of drives it, but also there's a, a lot of element of slapstick, which actually is is a, a, a big Vonnegut thing as well. He love loves slapstick, and it's like like him and his sister used to love watching people fall off buses and stuff because it was really funny. <laughs> and he actually wrote a novel called Slapstick after his sister died, which is really sad and funny at the same time. But um, uh, yeah, it's. I don't know. I mean, actually, there's a bit. Have you got the book there? There's one of the blackest lines of, of any. Uh... Well, while Paul's finding that, Dave, what do you think? Do you think it's. Uh, I think it's very dry uh, in terms of humour. Like, I don't think you necessarily pick up on it. Like, um, but this is the film specifically. Um, I don't think so the first time you watch it. At least I don't remember explicitly laughing. It was only upon like reading like about it like because I was trying to look up reviews of it and stuff and then it was more like when I read the review I went oh yeah that is quite funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. Did you pick up on that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to actually remember. Did, 
Because was there anything I found particularly funny in the book? It was more um, your man. Like I think we talked about this earlier. Your man, uh, hard W. Like what's his face? Um, Campbell. Campbell, the American yeah. Nazi. And, um, yeah. Like just because his outfit's so ridiculous. Yeah. I think that that's explicitly funny. I think. Yeah, that's absolutely hilarious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, he couldn't uh, have picked a shitter uniform. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> it's just like a really bad Captain America. Kind oh, yeah, of yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like if if they designed Captain America in the forties, it'd probably look like this. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> like to say, oh, don't get me started on superheroes, but anyway, I'm not going to that. Like Captain America's a fucking shite superhero. Superheroes are shit in general. But anyway, <laughs> um, like yeah. it, that's ridiculous. But I remember another kind of funny sentence was, "It's uh, what do you call him, Edgar Darby?" He starts talking about like we don't mince our phraseologies. Yeah, and like it's just ironic because he's. I think he's trying to make a point about like we're all very sharply spoken yeah and then he uses a word like phraseology <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's lovely like I uh, know that's a lovely week. did you find the line I did yeah it's um, it's just uh, it's, uh, it's it's set in uh, when the the prisoners of war are taken to the showers and uh, they're they're stripped naked and their clothes are covered in poison poison gas uh, to kill the lice uh, and he also says later then like millions of Something like millions of lice die, so it goes. But um, <laughs> uh, just this this one wee paragraph: the naked Americans took their place under under many shower heads along white tile wall. There were no faucets they could control; they could only wait for whatever was coming. Their penises were shriveled and their balls were retracted. Reproduction was not the main business of the evening. I mean, how dry is that? Like that's oh, no. <laughs> uh, we're not going to be banging each other tonight. Like. <laughs> so, so, I don't know there's something just so dry about it that made me laugh out loud and it's um, so so such a like such a brutal image because like you associate it with like the holocaust and stuff and, uh, yeah it just it just puts this really fucking horrible horribly dry black little joke in and it's just it just works so well it's just I don't know it's, it's funny it's humor it's just it's it's as dark as you can imagine because um, he's seen the worst things possible and uh, obviously the only way you can cope with that is yeah you know, I don't know how you would survive something like um, being in a POW camp in Dresden and yeah. living through the bombing and uh, having to incinerate corpses with oh my god yeah that, that's another difference um, in the in the film they just kind of start loading the bodies but I think in the book it mentions that they have initially buried them but yeah. then they've decided that that's not they're, what they need to do so they have, they have to dig many. them up again yeah that's right yeah yeah and then they, they try and burn them in the pits but it doesn't work it must be yeah. like a lack of oxygen so they've got to actually lift the rotting bodies yeah. out of the pits and then start setting them on fire pretty horrible Jesus pretty horrible that's horrendous mm-hmm. probably more grim than most horror films will review yeah that's true yeah, yeah. yeah. From, well, I yeah. don't think they ever match up to the like horror films never match up to reality yeah <laughs> you know well not reality, obviously, but you know what I mean. Like mm. yeah. portrayals of reality. Some actually horrible, uh, horrible descriptions of torture as well. And this where uh, Weary is talking about the the Iron Maiden, and uh, yeah, I know I always know an Iron Maiden was a horrible thing anyway. But uh, when he mentions the spikes for eyes, yeah, two massive, I, two um, two special spikes yeah. for for the eyes. I heard the Iron Maiden never existed. Oh really? Yeah, I heard that was like a propaganda kind of thing, but. I can't yeah. remember. It was about like sort of some European country, 
and some other European country wanted everybody to think that they were like you know savages. Yeah. So came up with this uh, absolutely yeah. savage. Device. Was it like yeah. Protestants yeah. trying to discredit the the Inquisition? Something like, like that. I don't know. Yeah, that sort of makes sense. I just remember hearing something like that. That, yeah. that sort of restores a little a little bit of faith. <laughs> In humanity, I suppose. Yeah. I think, I suppose, even when you think about the physicality of the Iron Maiden, it probably wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, because pe- yeah, people are too differently shaped for that to work. Specifically, yeah. the two spikes for the eyes. I, I mean, yeah, how yeah. would you possibly yeah. get people... There's, there's something in... It's not it's not Clutterous 5, it's in some of the Vonnegut novel where he talks about this fucking horrendous torture device that apparently was used in... Um, so, some Roman Emperor used which was a uh, built somebody built an iron like an iron calf an iron cow or an iron uh, pig or something it was like an iron cow and uh, they would have a hole to put somebody into it and then they would seal it up and they would build a fire underneath it and they would basically roast well, them alive it's like scream like, as well isn't it like, yeah yeah it has that's right yeah it has it has like two holes so it screams it sounds like I think it was like um, the Romans or the Greeks or something. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> and the guy who designed it uh, brought it to the court and said, "This is this is your new torture boot." And the guy, uh, the emperor, said, "This is the, the most horrendous torture boot I've ever seen. Well done, uh, but because it's so horrendous, uh, you're going to be the first person to try it because you're such a bastard for inventing it." <laughs> but thanks. <laughs> yeah, but I will use it. <laughs> but you're a bastard. <laughs> but thanks. <laughs> but like Vlad the Impaler got uh, a, a, a similar and unrelated story Vlad the Impaler apparently had uh, uh, somebody um, a carpenter like carve him like so many stakes he had like 52 prisoners or something and he had him carve 53 stakes in case he needed to impale somebody else and then they got to the 53rd and he went to the carpenter like uh, you know uh, the only reason I did this I got the next stake was to impale you you fucker and he threw him with it and he was like he just loved to joke <laughs> Love a surprise. I'm gonna say like the arsehole again, but um, it's probably not true. My friend, like Ian, you've met Jason, like uh, yeah. Jason Clannard. Yeah, he claimed to me that uh, the whole Vlad the Impaler thing is another version of propaganda. Oh but, yeah, but yeah, it was I've heard that. Two, between two warring nations or something, so they made right, this yeah. guy up to be yeah, this yeah. bloodthirsty, absolute bastard that did hey. all these things. Like, was that was the other like famous one? Is he supposedly impaled all these people? And then sat in the middle of them all eating bread and dipped it in their blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But like, I see. I I don't know. Like, I'm not educated on it at all, so I don't know how much of it's true or made up. Well, the same is certainly heard the myths anyway. Like, yeah, it's the same about Richard the yeah. Third. He he didn't have a hunchback and all the stuff he's supposed to have at all. It was, yeah. it was just propaganda. And also, you know that Hammer film, Countess Dracula, with Ingrid Pitt. I was considering picking that for one of our. Oh, uh, are you? Yeah, class. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Um. She's she's based on a real person who's supposed to have believed that she could, you know, retain. Contest Bathory. Yeah, but supposedly that's bollocks as uh, well. Yeah, that's what I heard as well. Yeah, oh, yeah. propaganda. All these good stories in my <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fuck's sake! It doesn't harm ever happen to anybody. <laughs> well, sure, the Holocaust made up. So, <laughs> oh, David Irving, not David Irving. What do you call him? I think yeah, David Irving. Yeah. David Irving. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and your man who runs there, the. Uh, elected governor of Iran. What do you call him? Oh uh, yeah. Is he still? Abedinejad. Is, is he still? Abedinejad. I thought it's a different guy. Now. Yeah, is it a different guy who tweets about like wanting the football team to do well? Oh <laughs> yeah, but your man, your man Abedinejad, didn't he say that the Holocaust he did. didn't happen? Yeah, yeah. 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 
But Mandel. He looks like Roy Keane as well. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Is there anything else anyone kind of wants to say about Slaughterhouse 5? There's obviously loads more we can talk about, but. Um. Don't know. What do you think? I don't know. I think, um. I think everybody should. I think everybody should read it, and I think everybody should watch it. Um. Yeah. I think, uh. Right, that's actually one of the things I was going to ask. Um. I seem to remember maybe about three or four years ago there was a sudden surge of interest in Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, would that be would that be right? Maybe I mean Vonnegut died about two thousand six. I think two thousand six, two thousand seven. Yeah, that's what I, I was think thinking. But I don't think it was that far back. I think it was like since I came back from Glasgow, there was just like suddenly everyone was reading Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah. Is that right? Like, 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 well, with, 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 like, did it get a re a re release or something? Yeah, possible. Uh, Vintage probably republished this edition in about two thousand ten. So yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. It, there's uh, no like difference between any of the editions, is there? Like, or no, not really. I don't think so. Um, yeah. No, this uh, actually this edition of two thousand. But yeah, there probably was. I think um, there was just Bonnie is definitely had a. A huge resurgence, resurgence in uh, in like the amount of books sold, and also I think there's a lot of his older unpublished work is starting to be republished. Uh, Good over the last yeah. four or five years, like a lot of short stories, and they're hit and miss, but they're it's nice to see. And they're like nice to I read read quite a lot of them. And they're generally mm. pretty good, you know. Novels are better. He was better as a novelist than he was as a short story writer. But okay. But uh, yeah, um, there's a few other films of his work as well. But uh, I've never seen them at all. Well, how did you find it, Ian? Actually, because I think that's kind of interesting. Considering you watched the film before you read the book, like, did you completely get what was going on? Like, was it completely why the film? Yeah, like, because I, I <clears throat> what, sorry, <throat> like when I watched the film, I was I, maybe it's just because I had the novel in my head. I think I was going. I don't know if I would completely understand everything here. I think actually now that, now that you come to mention it, I think that um, I had read like a brief synopsis so I knew it was about aliens transporting him through time and I think I started reading, started watching the film and he starts typing but then he's suddenly transported to Germany and you kind of go, and then it kind of goes back and forth and what I was saying earlier on about um uh, you know, modern audiences are 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 used to you know cinematic techniques like you know like films like Pulp Fiction that do jump. So when the when the modern audience wa- watches it, you're not necessarily going, oh, why is that jumped? We just accept that now. So I was just watching it, and then at one point, I think I suddenly went, oh yeah, weren't there supposed to be aliens in this? <laughs> so it was almost like um, I just thought I was watching a kind of autobiographical Second World War and, and the Aftermath type film the the alien stuff I actually forgot about um, until it kind of until I suddenly remembered so um, I don't know if it's necessary if it was necessarily apparent to me what was going on and then even when you do find out I mean when, it, when they have those kind of lengthy scenes where he's on Trafalmador with them um, what do you call her? Uh, the actress. Um, it's uh, Wild sorry. Wild hack. Yeah, um, that just that just seems a bit weird. It just it it just seems a bit kind of disjointed. 
Uh, and I'm not sure the point he's necessarily trying to make with those scenes, and I'm not sure it necessarily does add anything, but then, with other Chalfalmadorians and that aspect of it, um, nothing else would really make sense. Um, so yeah, I think actually when I first watched it, first watched it, it was a bit difficult actually to understand what was going on. Yeah, th- <clears throat> that's what I kind of thought, like what, as I said, like just watching it, like um, without the context of the book, I'm not sure I would have, like completely got it um, mm. or gotten it because uh, <clears throat> it kind of reminded me of recently I went to see uh, The Deer Hunter mm. I saw it for the first time like went to KFT just to see it yeah but watching that back like there's so many things within that I think or it's based within a context of the time it was shot because the way it's shot sometimes it's like that wouldn't like it would never get into a modern Hollywood film mm-hmm. yeah like some really weird surreal scenes in it like lingering shots of like random people with like weird music in the background which mm-hmm. just wouldn't happen in Hollywood films anymore but I think it's just because you're so used to seeing these things if, even if it's art house now like you just, yeah. you, you, you accept them now but I wonder what it would have been like you know kind of seeing it for the first time back then or yeah so, like, so that I think that applies to Slaughterhouse-Five but mm-hmm. yeah but at the same time it's a bit weird seeing it without the context of the book like it's yeah I think so Particularly if you're not really sure what's going on. I, I mean, I think that the, I think that the, that the first film I remember watching that jumped was Pulp Fiction, and I must have been about twelve or something, and you know probably shouldn't have been watching Pulp Fiction, but I remember that that blew me away. That idea that that you could start with um, the end and then work your way backwards, and it actually reminded me of the. Did you ever read any Muriel Spark? Yeah. You know that uh, that novel, um, the driving seat or the driver's seat. Oh no! I really read it. Yeah, it it begins it begins by telling you when and how the protagonist will die. Yeah, yeah. and then it works its way yeah. to to that point. Yeah, um, and I think I think the the point Spark was making was that um, it's not what it's why and how yeah, is, is yeah. the interesting aspect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Vonnegut kind of reminded me reminded me of that. I'm yeah. assuming I'm assuming Muriel Spark was before Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, they, I think Spark was writing in the sixties. She, well, I think they were maybe contemporary. I think, uh, I think Muriel Spark was maybe born around the teen or during the First World War. I think possibly. I don't know. Around that that kind of time, I'm not sure. Um, there, there's a bit. Martin Amos actually wrote a book called Times Arrow, where it's like, um, uh, it's a doctor in Auschwitz, um, doing operate but uh, yeah like Mangle yeah like it, I'm not sure if it actually is Mangle I can't remember if it actually is Mangle or one of his like sort of protégés but um, <laughs> his, his protégés is a horrible term <laughs> used for it or connected with Mangle it's, it's <laughs> but uh, <laughs> fucking hell but uh, yeah he's like um, doing a lot of horrible experiments on like you know, patients and uh, but it's happening backwards so he's healing them and uh, there's a bit in, in Solaris 5 obviously where he's watching yeah. the movie and it's like the the German gunners are healing the, the airships and yeah. planes and stuff and I, I thought that must have been sort of inspired by it or I'm not sure if, if Amos was inspired by Vonnegut he talks about that in the book all the all the planes flying backwards overhead yeah, sucking, sucking bombs, bombs out of the city, of the yeah. city and rebuilding everything that's class yeah and then like burying the the contents of the bomb or the things that made the bombs up into the yeah into the, like in, into the earth where they would never be found again it's yeah really that was beautiful people. wasn't it it is lovely that's, that's a yeah. phenomenal bit of the book actually and, uh, that's yeah that's what Amos uses as well um, but yeah it's 
really, really, it, it makes it even more horrifying for some reason. Like the the idea of like putting, like killing people in fiction is, is sort of a given, but like healing that sort of makes it seem like I don't know, puts it in a different light altogether. It makes you look at it fresh, and it makes it seem a lot more horrifying. Like, mm. Which is strange. It's good, really good technique. Like it's not in the film because obviously it'd be really hard to do in the film. Yeah, hard to kind of yeah. Because you can watch, watch the, the film backwards. Yeah. So that's, uh, that would be a whole other film in itself. But. Yeah. Um, was it, can I get like kind of pretentious and say like that point you raised about like it's not like you find out about the death of someone, but it's <clears throat> it's the how and why is the most interesting part? Yeah. I think that realize our sort of uh, like highlights um, how good like sort of storytelling is in a way. So like if you go back through time, you get myths and stuff. Yeah, the best example is probably the Bible. It's been like a, yeah. I'm a complete like atheist or whatever, non-believer or whatever, the description is. But whenever uh, Jesus says you're the guy that's gonna kill me to Judas, yeah, then you instantly want to know why or yeah, how, yeah, or how yeah, this true. is gonna happen. Yeah, and it's a good example. I just think it's a classic example of storytelling and how that's a sort of constant in like fiction in general mm. not that the bible <laughs> it is fiction but anyway <laughs> but you know yeah. what i mean like you know yeah. it's it's, uh, it's an example yeah. of storytelling like you know yeah, it's, yeah. and yeah I suppose it's, like it's constant throughout history i kind of think anyway. church got their best storytellers on the yeah, yeah on, a, yeah. on the case and uh, or this this, this belter, like. or you know why you can watch the same film twice because you're mm. not you're not watching it to find out what happens otherwise you wouldn't no, watch. no exactly. you're it's, watching it's it the, the journey it's of, the journey yeah. of the yeah, yeah. Of the story, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually wanted to kind of talk about the music as well in the film because because the music, because amazing, the music yeah. is all is all Bach. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's stuff from the Brandenburg Concertos, um, and I know I think Bach would have been um, kind of rev- you know the Nazis would have completely and utterly revered him because they will say, um, you know Hitler hated jazz and pop music and he loved you know I think I think I think, I think you know even his visual art he was very tradi- traditionalist and you know you can't get more nationalistic and traditional than J.S. Bach yeah um, and it kind of reminded me of um, there's there's a story that uh, my old piano teacher told me so I have to just assume that this is true but there was a famous um, Polish uh, pianist who was alive um, during the, the occupation um, uh, by the Nazis in the Second World War and they kind of, I think they'd allowed him to put on a concert, but he was told he could only play German music. Yeah. And he was told specifically not to play Chopin because obviously mm-hmm. Chopin was a was a famous Polish composer, and they didn't want the the Poles getting the kind of nationalist and right. getting riled up. <laughs> yeah. So he played the the concert, just played all German stuff, and they um, went off stage and came back on for an encore. And he he played uh, Chopin, and apparently there was a fucking riot. Amazing. <laughs> 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 That's so weird to think like someone in history could have thought that Chopin was like you know I don't know shit and because he's I know. Like, I don't know well, first of all because he's Polish and subhuman or something. yeah and second yeah. of all because he was is you know it's very romantic and kind of you know like Bach is very kind of uh, regulated and I've, I've never like I'm not an expert in classical music at all but I've never warmed it back good I don't I don't know what it is I think it's, yeah I, I I couldn't put my finger on it but I've always liked. The shitty popular stuff like Beethoven or whatever, and but and even Chopin, I don't know, but for some reason those two I can warm to, but I don't know what it's. Yeah, they're both very romantic and slushy kind of thing. Maybe that's what it is. Bach's quite, you know, there's a lot of 
very ornate. And very, very ornate, and yeah, yeah. Um, it almost kind of sounds sacred, like yeah. sacred music, and sacred music can be quite yeah. drab, but yeah. yeah. Um, I I of a weird weird thing uh, when uh, I were, were playing and had it on the black box one time, and it had a line in it that was uh, that <laughs> it was it was somebody talking absolute bullshit, and uh, they were talking about they said and one one of the lines was. Uh, did you know Hitler loved Gershwin, and uh, which was in, in context was still weird. Um, but uh, uh, somebody somebody stood up and went, "No, he didn't." <laughs> and I was sort of sitting inside, going like, "Shit, this guy's gonna beat me up <laughs> for writing that." But he, he didn't. <laughs> Hitler loved Gershwin. It's like, like I know he didn't. That's the point. But now you've ruined it, and now everybody else is <laughs> going like, "Yeah, here, what a dick." <laughs> Um, but yeah, as far as I could see and hear, it's just Bach. That's the whole soundtrack. Was it all like? Was it actually Bach, or was it based on Bach? Was it not I'm not sure. No, it no, it is. It's, it's like the, it's like stuff from the band of Broken Concertos. Yeah, there's like a, right. there's like two harpsichord concertos. There's an F minor and a G major. They use both of those stuff. Yeah, it's, it's all Bach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. lovely. The, yeah, it, it really it suited Dresden like. Yeah. Um, Played on piano, incidentally, which is you know. Yeah. Uh, Bach composed before the piano was invented. It should have been the White Stripes or something. <laughs> yeah, really. really Ar- the machine. Arctic Monkeys. <laughs> Arctic Monkeys. <laughs> That's what the kids are listening to these days in 2002. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you remember whenever Gordon Brown was asked who he listened to and he said, I listened to the Arctic Monkey? Because oh. <laughs> oh, no. someone had told him to say that and he couldn't uh, remember. No. Oh, no. <laughs> say the Arctic Monkey. <laughs> Oh, like, I know, like as if as if someone's gonna go. Oh my god, he listens to. I mean, what do you reckon Gordon Brown listens listens to? Fucking Bay City Rulers or something? <laughs> yeah, no, no, nothing like. I mean, do you, do you ever get these guys? Have you ever hear them desert island discs? And uh, they're like, uh, my favorite song of all time is this song that was released last week, and it's been on that ad, oh, that watch ad. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I just like think the... it reminds me of watches. <laughs> I just like can see Gordon Brown going, "Hey, I just met you, and this is crazy." Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I like that song. <laughs> am I? Am I going to get your vote now? <laughs> <laughs> Please like me. <laughs> oh dear, I like it. I know. Um, well, I don't know. It could be worse. It could like anal count or something. <laughs> yeah. I, I would. I prefer my. I, I would. Uh, I would rather. My the leader of my country listen to Adel Cunt or Cannibal <laughs> Corpse or something. Yeah, I mean that'd be brilliant. Imagine if the Prime Minister listened to like swallowing uh, shit smash face. and Neil Hamdev. Yeah. <laughs> that gets me going in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> or like you know the old classic fucked with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> Horrendous. Remember that Wild Hearts album with uh, the guy shitting in a kebab or shitting in a pit of bread. Oh, <laughs> no, crucial difference. Yeah, there used to be a, uh, there used to be a t-shirt. I remember somebody having a t-shirt of it. That'd be a great if you saw your prime minister wearing a, a wild hearts t-shirt with somebody shitting in a pit of red. You'd be like, ah, this country's all right. <laughs> I don't know. I think that would be the far right would love them. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. shitting on those foreign like, breads. <laughs> yeah, maybe actually. Nobody yeah. likes those foreign breads. <laughs> <laughs> good British white pan <laughs> I like the I really shitty salty really. ones that are square <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah oh I just uh, 
I just, by the way, finished my Snake Dog IPA, and that's what it was called, and it was fucking delicious. <laughs> Anybody that's, that's uh, got a got access to any, it, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So, anything else anyone wants to say about Schlachthof Fünf? About the actual film, rather than beer or shit and kebabs. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Peter Breads. Peter Breads, right? No, I, 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 well, I, I'm just, uh, I'm just saying, I, I will should do your uh, final review. I had, I, I had sort of low expectations of it. I thought it would. Uh, I thought it'd probably be a bit cheap, a bit, um, a bit unwieldy, but because um, I mean the, the narrative that it's it's grappling with is is, is certainly unwieldy. But um, no, I I thought uh, it dealt with it very well. I thought it, it took out the parts it couldn't couldn't deal with, didn't try to deal with them to its credit, and absolutely, and uh, didn't ruin itself by that, uh, and it. Yeah, I, th- I thought it conveyed the story very well, and I think it, it worked as an anti-war film. It worked as a comedy. It worked as as some sort of semblance of a sci-fi film, to the extent that it needed, maybe more more of a sci-fi film than it needed to be. But um, no, I I very much enjoyed it. I uh, really enjoyed the chance to read the book again, and actually, I'm probably gonna uh, read a whole stack of Kerbalagat novels all over again now that I've I've. Uh, been reintroduced to how fucking great Kurt Vonnegut is um, he's um, somebody if if you've never read him you should definitely give him a chance he's got a lot of very very varied work and uh, very funny very dark and very uh, just just a, a great a great sort of example of what a human being can be you know just a Somebody who who likes likes being alive, but also um, yeah. has has really no faith in the, the act of being alive. <laughs> you know, wants <laughs> to make the most of it, but knows it's shit. That's really well put. Which isn't exactly what I believe, but uh, it's um, yeah. I think it. Uh, Mark seven seventeen. Mark seven seventeen. The film. I'll maybe give a fourteen and a half. It's pretty respectable. The mm-hmm. book, I'll give it a good solid 17. Yeah, 17, or 17. The book here, okay. Young David? Um, I, I don't know. The problem for me is I can't see this film without the context of the book. Like, just because I've read the book first. I <clears throat> like the, I think they said this before, but like, if I watched it without seeing the book, um, I don't know what my opinion of it would be. Just because um, when I was watching it, like I, that's all I could think about. Just having read the book, and the book is absolutely amazing, and I couldn't escape that, and had to live up to that, which is a problem, I think. Um, it's not too bad. I think like the, the best thing about it was the casting seemed to be apt. It was all spot on, like for me anyway. All the actors were people I imagined, and <clears throat> I, I tried to read up on that actually, and it seemed like the casting was like done within that kind of like uh, idea as well that they picked people they thought would suit the characters rather than go for big actors of the time because mm-hmm. um like what did that director done before he'd done was Bitch, it Billy, Bitch yeah Bitch Cassidy yeah. and mm-hmm. was, what was the other one it was the Sting or something Sting yeah and gone for like Paul Newman all yeah, the time yeah. and people like that and 
this one was just a bunch of new actors, which I kind of liked in, in that way. He'd looked for people who he thought like really suited those characters. Yeah. I didn't know mm -hmm. any of them. I'd never seen any of them in anything. Yeah, same, same. I think that guy, the guy that played Billy Pilgrim, he went on to just become like a... <clears throat> like he didn't have a particularly... Like memorable acting career, he no, went no. to work in Wall Street or something. Yeah, yeah. His last film was like nineteen eighty four or something like that. Yeah, and, uh, I don't know. I don't know if he died. Like I think he's. I think he oh, he's still going. Yeah, yeah he's, he's still. But he's still, he's not an actor anymore. No. Just, but um, yeah, like within that context, it was good. But I can't escape the book. Like I just, yeah. I can't say it without that. You know that particular context. Um, as a film. I don't think I can have a fair assessment of it. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. Just, yeah, it's yeah. just weird. I, I, well, to be fair, like I do think the Dresden scenes are very, very good. Mm -hmm. But I think everything else in it doesn't won't live up to the book. But the Dresden scenes do. Yeah. But I don't know if I have to give it like a score. I'm gonna go for. <laughs> uh, that doesn't seem kind of harsh, but like nine or ten. Yeah. But if I was going to write the book, I'd give the book a 17 as well, like, you know, out of a 17. Hmm. <laughs> Fair enough. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, I think it's just because of the context of it's not going to live up to the book. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it can. Hmm. No? Fair enough. Yeah, just when you were saying there about other people, um, other actors, um, I knew that I'd seen your man before, um, like uh, Coyote Bob. Yeah. Oh yeah, Wild Wild Bob. Yeah, what's yeah. it called? Like Wild Coyote Bob or something? He. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Wild Bob Cody. That's what it Wild is. Wild Bob Cody. That's it. Yeah. Um, did you guys recognize them? No. He, he no. seemed he seems familiar to me, and I couldn't put my, put put my finger on him, but I just looked it up and realized yeah. he's the he's the um he's the snow shoveler in uh, Home Alone. Oh, oh really? No yeah, way. he's no the, way I would have got that. No, yeah. no chance. Yeah. No, it doesn't no. look like him at all, though. Oh, no! Like as soon as I saw him, I was like, I know that guy. No, he's like, he's, <laughs> he's like kind of fatter, and like, no, he definitely looks like him. <laughs> I'm gonna watch that again because no, I've got a different image in my head. Mm. No, I definitely recognised him, but I didn't know where from. I just looked it up there. <laughs> hmm, hold oh, yeah. on, he was in Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Escape from Alcatraz as well. Oh yeah, and Doc Hollywood. Oh wait, was he uh, in Escape from Alcatraz? Was he the guy with the bird? Right, there's no way you can tell uh, He's called Doc in Escape from Yeah, Alcatraz. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the guy with the bird, isn't it? Yeah. He plays a farmer in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He's in The Great Gatsby, the 1974 version. I've seen that as well. Uh, I haven't seen that. Yeah. The, um... No, me neither. I haven't seen that either. Robert Redford. Yeah. Yeah. So he's in a few things. Uh, yeah, my kind of toppings would be uh, I watched the film first and really enjoyed it. I, I distinctly remember upon the kind of credit sequence at the end just leaving it and thinking, yeah, phenomenally good. Really enjoyed that. Um, I think it gives you everything. There's There are moments that are really poignant and sad and make, you know, kind of the human condition. And then there are moments that are kind of banal and frivolous and funny. And, you know, I think the... Um, the characters uh, are quite uh, comical, quite, um, in fact, now that I think about it actually, there isn't really, there isn't really a sensible woman in the, in the whole film. I was just thinking the same thing actually. Uh, Apart from Montana, but, but she's a sex object. Yeah. 
Is Vonnegut a bit unfair to women in the, in the, in the story? I think he might be, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, that's a bit too late yeah, to start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get into that. <laughs> I think he might be, and I'm thinking about his other novels, he might be a little bit as well. But I think if we ever like discuss a uh, Hammer film, that might be a perfect... Yeah. Yeah, or indeed an um, early 80s slasher. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so anyway, um, yeah... Uh, brilliant film, um, brilliantly cast, brilliantly shot, moments of cinematographic uh, elegance. Um, the kind of sci-fi Truffle-Madorian stuff is maybe dated slightly, kind of jars maybe a bit, but really that's only if you let it, um, if you kind of um, distance yourself and you know take in the, the wider picture, as the Truffle-Madorians would probably tell you to do. <laughs> um, it, uh, yeah, it really holds up. And I, I, I can't believe I'd never heard of it. And I can't believe it didn't. It, it didn't do very well in English-speaking countries. I think it won a Can um, a Can Award. I think maybe one of those pictures that kind of did well in Europe, but not necessarily in um, English-speaking countries. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, Art of Seventeen. Um, I'd probably give it about twelve or thirteen out of seventeen, and the yeah. book fifteen or sixteen. Um, that uh, the bit, the, the bit. Uh, what is it? What is it? What's the phrase? Oh, and so it goes. That that really got my tits. <laughs> 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 I think I'm the opposite. Yeah, no, I. I In I, fact, wasn't there? There, there also seemed to be a lot of uh, and so ons. I seem to remember in the book. Yeah, I remember yeah, that coming up quite like a lot. Zizek. Like Zizek. Like <laughs> Zizek, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there you go. Yeah, yeah, brilliant, brilliant film, brilliant book. Uh, I would recommend anyone read or see either. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Well, at least read it. If you can't yeah, yeah, definitely. If you can only do one, read it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's kind of inspired me to go out and read some more Vonnegut. Um, I, d- I don't really read much fiction these days. Most of the stuff I read is kind of you know about brewing or <laughs> making food or something. Something that I don't really know much fiction, but that kind of that kind of got me back into it. And as I say, I read it in about twenty four hours. Um, Which is autobiography. You can read that. In. No, because you've already given me you've already given me a poobs biography. <laughs> oh yeah, it's good to read autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I read it in about two hours. I'm already reading it. But um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think before we go, is it just time to say what the crack is for the next episode? Yeah, and who's so George, is it? My choice. Yeah. What's it gonna be? Um, I I kind of thought of this a while ago, and I said to you guys, you probably know what it is, but I, I kind of, I was thinking, should I choose something else because we might maybe leave our favorite films for later on? But I thought I I put off. Sure, you could be dead. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna be killed by an axe murderer. And so it goes. And so it goes. I put off. Thinking about this um, all week, and then halfway through the podcast, I remembered, "Fuck, I haven't, I haven't picked the film, so I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna go for Joseph Ellison's Don't Go in the House." Okay. Oh, okay. Um, have you guys seen it? I haven't. No. I no, I don't think I have actually. No. Okay. Well, it was it was a video nasty actually, um, yeah. and it's 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 pretty uh, it's pretty brittle. It's right. it's it's uh, what, pretty. What's what's the most basic? premise I might have seen it um, there's kind of like a, a kind of Alfred Hitchcock psycho tinge to it basically this guy lives with his domineering mother his mother dies and he enjoys his freedom but then goes mental 
and he um the way he vents his frustration is he builds this massive like steel plated room uh, and, right. he bu- and he buys this fire retardant uh, suit and he goes out and no, I seen kidnaps girls takes them back ties them up and tortures them to death fucking sounds happy it's pretty brutal but yeah. but like Cannibal Holocaust you, you will find that the, the treatment of the subject matter and the actual film itself is brilliantly shot and it's very enjoyable very enjoyable watch fair enough sadist <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we've got Don't Go In The House to look forward to Excellent. Cool. Yay! Don't go in the house. <laughs> one of my favorite films of all time. Absolutely one of my favorite films of all time. Phenomenally good film. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> well, I think that's us then. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, and so it goes. So it goes. And so it goes. Poor old Kurt Vonnegut. I know. I hope he was happy. I don't think he was. <clears throat> but mm. uh, yeah, that's the kind of dark we'll leave you. I, I think. <laughs> I think you would have trouble, and maybe this is maybe this is what the crack with Billy was. I think you would have trouble after after something like what Vonnegut went through. You would have trouble coming back and, be, and go, adapting to the nine to five and being happy with you would, with just your you marriage would. and your house. And uh, especially haven't haven't seen what he saw, and also come back with knowledge that his mother had killed herself on yeah, Mother's Day yeah. while he was in the war. That's that's pretty yeah. fucking horrible itself. Like. And I would also imagine there would be. Uh, element of guilt if you'd survived something like the Dresden bomb yeah definitely yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you'd so, probably feel a bit guilty that all those yeah. young young German boys and girls died in their, sleeping in their houses while you were yeah and the fact that he was mm. a, he was from a German American family as well yes exactly uh, yeah. played, played on it uh, obviously played on his mind as well like, yeah, um, to like raise another kind of thing um this guy called Chris Hedges. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff, Paul. No, yeah, no, no. It's 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 nonfiction stuff. He mm. he was well, he's still is a journalist. Um, he wrote a book called War Is a Force that gives us meaning. Oh yeah, yeah it's yeah. worth reading. Like uh, yeah. basically, he he's a foreign correspondent. He like I think he served in Nicaragua first. Yeah, and then he's done stuff like Iraq and everything. But um, his point was like when once you're like in the midst of war. When you mm. come back to normal life, it's not the same. Like it's, yeah, yeah. You, if you there's something going on immediately when you're in a war experience, but like once you come back to everyday life, there's no meaning involved anymore, and you get very depressed. And yeah, it's just you just like everything doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's it's another book worth reading. If, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I I only ever see. That. I don't think I really skimmed it at all. Like, but mm. I just to pick it up. I bought it in Waterstones actually. Did you? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll get it and pick it up. Cool. So, yeah, we're going from kind of uh, quite uh, thought provoking uh, literature to horrendous uh, early 80s indie ex- American exploitation films. So, that's the kind of uh, smorgasbord of. Yeah. cinematic treats that you get here at uh, <laughs> hashtag WSD podcast absolutely I'm going to go from uh, I'm not going to read, read a book next time I'm just going to just start cutting, cutting up some meat yeah. <laughs> with your top off <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Get, get a lighter and, um, and an aerosol and just blast some sausages <laughs> cool are you going to watch like Wrestlemania when you're doing that? <laughs> yeah probably yeah. Or, or like Playboss or something <laughs> Listen to Limp Biscuit really loudly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, so um, yeah, that's us. Uh, <laughs> thanks again for listening. If indeed anyone is, and time to say goodbye. So, young young Paul, say goodbye. Goodbye. And young David. Bye. And um, we'll see you next time for um, some horrendous American horror. So, yeah, thanks for listening. Cheers. Come